You're listening to an OTB AM podcast. You can watch the show or listen live every weekday morning from 7.45 AM. Subscribe to the OTB AM podcast stream for more stuff just like this. A very good morning to you. Welcome along to OTB AM this morning. We're with you bright-eyed and bushy-tailed on this Wednesday morning and there's lots and lots to talk about, including the fact that Shane Lowry is two strokes clear at the Abu Dhabi HSBC Championship presented by EGA? 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 Let's go with EGA. EGA, because that's snappy. Uh, yeah, two shots clear of Mike Lorenzo Vera. Oh, not, like, not, not hugely familiar with Mike's work, I'm not going to lie to you. No, Brooks Kepke is lagging a small bit behind Tommy Four Fleet, under par, yeah. Also doing pretty well. Louis Westhazen, five under. Westhazen's up there as well. So it's a decent field and a massive prize pot, as tends to be in these uh, early European Tour events uh, in the Middle East. So uh, most importantly from a Shane Lowry perspective is a couple of years ago you would say, can he get through to be in contention once again after... Quite often, uh, tra- uh, like blazing a trail in the opening round or two. Whereas now, what we want him to do is just actually blaze that trail at all and actually be in contention at the start. And if he can get into a position on Friday and then obviously into the final day on Saturday, where he's actually fully in contention at the end of a tournament, then we've got Shane Lowry back. He's got to win. He's got to win. He's like we've got to have confidence. Good old Shane Lowry. Come on, because that would be an amazing start to the year. That's exactly the type of. It's a, it's Put your year on steroids. He's in the papers actually this morning talking about the fact that the Ryder Cup and being on Patrick Harrington's team is his goal, which is an ambitious enough goal, but something that's definitely achievable if he can put uh, like performances like this together. Like it, it's just consistency. Finding that consistency again, being contention is good enough for me. I know you want to see him win. We all want to see him win. Oh, yeah, but well, let's, let's build this thing up incrementally. Well, although he's such a streaky form player that like when he's in form. When you're at bat, you got to do it. You've got to take your opportunities and decide, right, this is the week where I'm going to win. The other thing we want to talk about at the start of the show this morning is perhaps we've seen the end of days for uh, Dermot Connolly in a Dublin jersey. It's not entirely shocking, but Senan Connell has voiced what many people thought. Um, he was at the launch of Air Sports Alliance League coverage yesterday and said that he doesn't expect him back in the Dublin jersey, that he hasn't heard anything about Connolly training with the team up to this point. And what's the exact quote? Uh, from my own personal point of view, I can't see it. There's not much that comes out of the camp, but I find it difficult to see Dermot coming back into the panel now, and I haven't heard anything to the contrary. I'd love to see him back in the Dublin jersey. I think he's the most talented player, etc., etc. But Jim is ruthless. He is always looking forward. Brian Howard ended up taking his jersey last year and is doing a good job, and Jim will probably believe that he has covered there. Uh, he also goes on to talk about... Uh, Jim Gavin's uh, motto, which um, is, there are no stars in this team, we will win with or without you. So, like, he, he, he kind of speaks about the idea that it's really going to be up to Jim Gavin here. Doesn't really mention whether or not he's got information on whether or not Dimmer Connolly wants to go back in. Uh, maybe he doesn't have that information. But certainly, it seems to me that the, the birdies whispering in Senan Connell's ear are telling him that yeah, there is hesitancy on the part of Jim Gavin and his management team to invite Dimmer Connolly back. Yeah, I wonder, does it have to be an invite, or can you just show up? You do need to be invited, do you? <laughs> does uh, Jim Gavin have like massive bodyguards on the door of Parnell Park, and it's like, nah, not tonight. Show me your, uh, show me your All-Ireland medal from last year. No, nah, yeah. you don't have one. Yeah. Not tonight. Yeah. Um, ah, look, come on. Why won't, you, why won't you take him back? He took a year out, he, came, he comes back. A lot of people take years out and come back. It's already happened within that squad. Twice. Yeah. Both players come back better than ever. That being said, they were much younger. Jim McConnelly turns 32 this year. He doesn't look like a 32-year-old, doesn't play like a 32-year-old, doesn't have the athleticism of a 32-year-old. And mentally, he will be hugely refreshed, I'd imagine, after last year, just not being in the bubble of being a Dublin footballer in this city uh, last summer would have helped him hugely. Also, he's Dermot Connolly. 
Like he is one of the best footballers we've seen this century. He needs to be in the in whatever county he plays for. He needs to be in that panel, even if it is uh, a Dublin panel that have got unbelievable strength and depth. Like, is he really the type of person who, if Jim Gavin sits down with him now and Jim says to him, "You're not in my plans currently for the starting fifteen, you'll probably make the squad if you work hard enough, and then we'll see about a starting fifteen spot." Are you going to be happy with that, Dermot? I can't imagine he's going to tell him to f off. Like, I, I'd say he'd be like, "Okay, fine, I'll fight for." My way back into the team. He knows how sport works. Like if if he saw like Jack McCaffrey and Paul Mannion coming straight back into the squad a couple of years ago, and they were just automatically handed back their route into the starting fifteen the way they were before they went abroad, he'd probably be a little bit pissed off at that too. So I'm sure Dermot Connolly understands the process that has to be undertaken here for him to get back into the Dublin squad, which is just working hard over the next couple of months. So I don't really understand why that opportunity wouldn't be afforded to him. Are there any downsides to having one of the most luxuriously gifted footballers of his generation or any well, other generation in your team? That's just putting it way too simply, obviously. There is... I'm asking, are there any downsides? Explain the, explain the cons. Well, that, that's just looking at it as Dermot Connolly, the footballer. Like, we don't know what sort of influence Dermot Connolly has within uh, the squad. I'm trying to find the quote here. And uh, Senan Connell says he doesn't want to call him a loose cannon. I should stress that. Uh, but he does mention the idea that uh, Jim Gavin doesn't like the idea of a loose cannon in the squad. Now, again, Connell is not calling him a loose cannon, but anybody who might uh, be construed to have a, a streak within them that could be disruptive to the harmony of the team, who doesn't just stand in line when asked to stand in line, is that something that Jim Gavin wants when he's meticulously planned this thing to perfection so far? I mean, I, I have to say, I think that that's overstating things um a little bit like he wears a Leitrim hurling top because his brother played hurling for Leitrim and people go oh Connolly's not wearing the same gear as everybody else I think uh, all, of the, all of the Jeremy Connolly stuff is massively blown out of proportion because how do you know he's the most because he's the most luxuriously gifted footballer because how important is it that he wears a Leitrim hurling top and why the hell do we know how do you know that that's the, the beginning and the end of the problem uh, why, like, why, that's why does that matter it's clearly not an issue it's clearly not it, an issue what it, he wears it gets commented on in a way it's like okay so if you think Chip Gavin is actually listening to what people are commenting on regarding Dermot Connolly with regards to not inviting this guy back into the panel I think then um, you, you've clearly got a wrong representation of what Jim Gavin is all about if, if there is a reason why he doesn't want to bring Dermot Connolly into the squad clearly something so what are you suggesting I would suggest that whatever Dermot Connolly, I don't want to say he had a disruptive influence on the panel, but I would say... Jim, no, and there's literally no evidence of that. Because nothing gets out from the Dublin panel at all. But so you're it's, just... It's, it's so completely in the what, realm what of you're speculation doing is, here. Okay, exactly. Exactly, right? And you can't speculate without actually knowing stuff. But all we do know is that any time Connolly is involved in an incident, it gets massively blown out of proportion. Like... Uh, the lengthy suspension that he got that nobody else seems to get for uh, interference, minor interference with um, a linesman that effectively ends his Dublin career. It doesn't fully because he comes back and plays in the All-Ireland Final that year and they need him in the All-Ireland Final that year. Um, That was a massive scandal that was parsed over on the Sunday game in a way that loads of other incidents, depending on who the player is, get brushed over. But what does that have to do with the current situation? I'm Jim Gavin stood up for him. Jim Gavin had a mini boycott of RTE because he felt the coverage was so unfair. He was on his side in that. 
this is completely different. I don't know what, what is the issue here because if we take it just on the basis of him as a footballer, there's no question, even with the, one of the greatest panels we've ever seen in Gaelic games in Ireland, he has to be in that panel. So like, there has to be another element here. Like, well, I, I, don't, I don't know. Well, I, don't think, I don't think there does have to be another or element. May, or maybe... I, I, actually, like, I, I, think that what, I think that there's too easy a trap when it comes to players like this that everybody goes, oh, he's a wrong and therefore everything he's ever done is bad, right? Because he becomes the, the focus of massive attention and maybe maybe some people don't want that attention around their team and I, I just would like to state that I think that a lot of that stuff is bullshit that there's the crappy Irish rumour mill that surrounds certain players oh completely like that's like that's not, obviously not what and, I'm referring to and here. so and so let's just like separate that and go stick them back there's loads of people that require different types of management in any panel of the size and talent and skill sets that the dubs have. So why do you think he's not in the panel then? I don't know. That's what I'm asking. I think that they should actually just stick him in and see what happens. Like, the, the loose cannon, the not loose cannon bits, I, I think it's too easy for people to go, oh, that's what that is. Like, that's, you know, we're just accepting this. He's unmanageable somehow, which doesn't seem to be the case at all. It hasn't been the case when he became the best footballer in the country over the best part of a decade. Yeah, I, I, my point here is that this idea about the tirade against Dermot Connolly a couple of summers ago, and I agree with you that the, the focus is magnified, it's completely overblown. And most importantly, that's the sort of stuff that Jim Gavin really doesn't care too much about, particularly when it comes to choosing a player for his panel. Like, if there is some, if there is some other reason here why Dermot Connolly is not going to be invited into the Dublin panel... Maybe there is none. Like, I don't think it has anything to do with the, the idea that you know, he, he caused a bit of a media furore a couple of years ago because he I pushed the linesman and it got overblown because he's Jim Connolly. When you look at um, the comments from Jim Gavin last year, he said he really looks forward to Jim getting back playing Gaelic games. Remember that? Vaguely. So he didn't specifically say we really look forward to him coming back and rejoining the Dose panel. There was never the explicit expression that he will be welcome back to the Dubs panel. I think I, I could be wrong about that, but I'm pretty sure that I remember the specific wording being very interesting about. Oh, we really, you know, we wish him all the well. We hope he's having a, a good time, getting a bit of a rest, and we really can't wait to see him back playing Gaelic games. I, I'm ju- I'm just quite reluctant to take everything here on face value. That I'm not sure that we have all the information because of the fact that he is such a good footballer, and it doesn't matter how good that Dublin panel is or how settled that panel is last year. And like to be fair. <laughs> Maybe Jim Gavin is is kind of separate to the Dear McConnell situation. Said to himself at the end of last year, "This is it. This is the panel. We're not bringing anybody new in for next year." Will they, will we see any new faces? Like the way he's operated so far is that there's always one or two new faces that come into the panel. So you expect there yeah. will be. There hasn't been a single retirement over the course of the winter. Is the only thing. No, because there's five in a row on the line. No one's going to retire. It seems to be a period of self improvement from all angles. Really, like the Johnny Cooper cited in the newspapers this morning as you know going to see the All Blacks train and Leinster and all that sort of thing that everybody's looking for ways to make themselves better ahead of this five in a row how does Jim Gavin make the squad better well an automatic way to do it is add one of the generational talents into the squad yeah, maybe he feels that that's unnecessary even from imagine there's a little bit of a bite in training the first night he's back imagine the difference everybody's a little bit on guard mm. like the defence who have to now suddenly deal with him as opposed to fairly Okay, so very, very talented forwards that they're up against, but you know relatively what you're going to get. Yeah. You know, that the habits they have, the tendencies they have, which foot they're going to kick off, 
the aggression levels that they're going to show, like you understand what that is. With Connolly, you just haven't a clue. Like I think it's madness like just, not to have him involved. Just my final point. This is this is my entire school of thought on this. It doesn't make sense to not bring Dermot Connolly into the panel for footballing reasons. I think we can all agree to that. It makes sense to bring in a player like him into any football panel ever. So there has to be non-footballing reasons if he's not going to bring him in. And maybe just non-football... Like, the, people can make innuendos or whatever out of that. Like, non-footballing reasons could mer- merely be Jim Gavin saying, I just don't want anybody new in the panel for this year. And that could be fine. I just don't think that uh, Jim Gavin has had a look at Dermot Connolly and said to himself, I don't like the cut of that guy as a footballer. I don't think this guy is good enough to play for the Dublin panel because that's just not true. He's good enough for any panel. Here's what's uh, coming up on the show this morning. We're going to talk a little bit more about this later on. We're going to talk about Liverpool and Spurs. Phil Egan's going to join us. Liverpool have... Um, all of a sudden got a massive uh, dearth of right backs. It looks like they might have to put um, James Milner, Milner back there again or maybe Fabinho or maybe a kid who made his debut last week. Uh, all of a sudden Trent Alexander is, is injured. Camacho, is he anything to the old Spanish manager? Good question. Right on the spot there. Uh, I'll frantically Google while you call up uh, the rest it's of us. It's Portuguese, so it's unlikely. Well, you know, I mean... Oh, Emma says that, so... Uh, any, any any other information I'm there? I'm Googling here if you want to tell people what else is coming up on the show today. Yeah, so what else? We've got the uh, newspapers coming your way and we're going to talk the depth chart for 9 and 10. So, um, I want to ask the question, would you rather have uh, Murray and nobody behind him or uh, everybody available but no Murray earlier in the week? Obviously Murray and nobody available uh, assuming he stays fit but you can't guarantee that either. So, that's the situation we find ourselves in. Johnny Sexton also not going to play it looks like now before the England game um, clearly being wrapped in cotton wool ahead of the Six Nations. But first, here's the sports pages. So, <clears throat> starting with the examiner. A new sheriff in town. Can O'Neill bring the glory days back to Nottingham Forest? He's looking at the training session going, oh my God, these players are even worse than I thought they were. Actually, I don't know. I mean, uh, it's, it's mad, the separation in how people perceive Martin O'Neill Chris Sutton came out and defended him fairly significantly, saying, look, yeah, got to the Euros, then results weren't great after that, but not having it that he was a dinosaur and the players didn't know their roles. But the players who were involved said they didn't know their roles. So, I don't know. Maybe, like, Chris Sutton... Chris Sutton was already a man by the time he got to Celtic. He'd already won a league. He'd played for... uh, one of the best managers of his generation in Kenny Dalglish and knew what he was supposed to be doing. Maybe this Ireland team didn't have enough grown men in it. May, and maybe there is a larger point about international football there in general. That is the international manager's role to take the collection of what's already there and get the best out of them. And there is going to be no arm around the shoulders. There's going to be no real coaching in terms of self-improvement and all that sort of thing. And it's just about being, almost like being a Ryder Cup captain. You have a collection of individuals and you just get the, the most out of them for whatever, the week, the week and a half that you have them for. Um, now, obviously, did Martin O'Neill get the best out of his Irish players? I think the answer to that, particularly from what we saw in 2018, is no. And Chris Sutton would probably have uh, a different view to a lot of people on that, I suspect. He, he agreed that he didn't over the last, um, since the Euros got the best out of them. Uh, Walter's Angel's breath looks something special. So... Uh, Supreme Novice's hurdle favourite Angel's Breath will put his Cheltenham credentials to the test at Haydock on Saturday with owner Di Walters describing him as something special at the front of the harassing post this morning um, <laughs> I'm looking at the front of the uh, Times and it's like um, everybody celebrating Theresa May's defeat last night everybody thinks it's a win for them like literally 
everybody goes, this is the best thing that possibly could have happened. Those people who want a new vote, those people who want, uh, you know, a little England for the English, think it's amazing. And um, everybody besides, which we'll talk about a little bit later, especially over here. Uh, O'Neill set to link up with Keane again. This is the news coming through that there's been a second meeting with Roy Keane <coughs> and Nottingham Forest, and it's going well. I think he's going to be appointed today by the sounds of things. Yeah, it's just, you know, generally the second meeting gets done. It's a done deal and everybody shakes hands and it's like announced and you just move on. But it's becoming a big deal again, isn't it? The idea that they shouldn't appoint Roy Keane as... No, just that, that Keane is getting involved. Yeah, it, it is. I'm not sure how much he would have thought about this once the Ireland job was done and dusted, that he was going to attach himself to Martin O'Neill once again. Maybe he really enjoys working under O'Neill. Like, are, are we wiping the slate clean when it comes to their record? What happens if they get Nottingham Forest promoted next season? And they have their first f- full run at the... Is that... They can sign a winger who can get to the byline and whip in some crosses for their centre-forward. Well, that's, uh, like that, that seems to be like the dream for Martin O'Neill, that they can actually sign a player that's better than the crop he's dealt with. Not exactly uh, an ideal situation when you're an international manager. So maybe, that, maybe he is... Maybe we'll be reminded of the, the transfer market genius that is Martin O'Neill, and he'll do a sublime job with Roy Keane as his uh, lieutenant... Like there, are, there are some questions now about like where is Roy Keane's career going? Is he happy to be an assistant manager for the rest of his career or for the foreseeable future? If so, that's fine. I always thought that he was a man who wanted a little bit more in terms of becoming a manager, becoming the number one. And after his last spell at Ipswich, that it really was just a stopgap being assistant manager at the Republic of Ireland. And he would have said in 2016, even, not even going back as far as 2011 when he was at Portman Road, 2016 at the Euros. After that, you would have thought, right, okay, what happens now? Do we we got to try and keep these guys if Roy Keane needs to go and spread his wings a little bit? Let him go. Luck to him. Whereas now, it's been a damaging couple of years. Yeah, it was. Um, I, you know, everybody always says in that job too long. Except Mick McCarthy, obviously, he's going to get out just the right time after we've won the Euros. Yeah, like the the great news this morning is that uh, Troy Parrott could now be in line for a few Spurs appearances or bench appearances since Harry Kane is injured. Mike Lobafemi, once he comes back, bet you he's going to start banging the goals again. Declan Rice is going to declare for Ireland. Jeff Hendrick should have had that goal at the weekend. Kieran Clark scored at the weekend. Things are looking up. It's all coming up, Mick. If if Mick gets Declan Rice to play for Ireland, I will forgive him for his Saipan. <laughs> Uh, it, yeah, like you say, all managerial careers end in failure. But if he gets Declan Rice to play for Ireland, he should quit before the Gibraltar game, because no results would uh, be as good as the result that is getting Declan Rice to be Irish. Uh, Rojo facing exit as Manchester United plan overhaul in defence. <laughs> Fair play. <laughs> I think Ole Gunnar Solskjaer is walking in and going, "What? Look at these guys. They're crap. What are you doing here? Get out." Get out. He said, Don't come back. He, well, he literally said that to Rojo. Rojo's gone back to Argentina. Uh, I'm not... To be fair, it's, it kind of looks like a fairly serious enough situation. I'm not sure what's actually going on. So he went to the warm weather training camp, I think, and then uh, he was told to go back to Argentina. He, like, I think he needs to get his headspace right. And like, by the sounds of things, it seems like Solskjaer wants to give him another opportunity um, to try and be in a good headspace, fully fit, on the pitch for Manchester United. But then again, time is against him. He's injured. So they've been linked with um, Koulibaly. Uh, like, everybody gets linked with him because he's good. Yeah. But what we've seen from particularly Liverpool is when they get linked with a player who's good, they just go and get him. And there's a, bit, a few bits and pieces where they haven't. But again, they were players who might not join immediately, who would join next year. But it's like, oh, Virgil van Dijk's very good. Liverpool are linked with him. They like illegally tapped him up, tried to steal him for a while, had a massive row with the club who owned him, and then still got him eventually. That's like 
took a little bit longer maybe than they anticipated. But rather than us reading about it, why are we not going, oh, Koulibaly's on a private jet on his way to um, Manchester United. He's signing the contract on the plane. That's how much they want him. Well, does that suggest that Manchester United don't really want him then? I don't know. No, I don't think so. It seems that the idea of going and getting what you want is a fairly obvious move, particularly in modern football and the competitiveness in the transfer market and the urgency with which Manchester United need to sign somebody. So that suggests to me that perhaps they're not fully invested in who they actually want uh, rather than uh, not being able to go and get it. Tier 2 Championship off the agenda is uh, the headline on a column keys piece. A second tier championship will not be on the agenda GAA Congress next month as more time and work is required to get a broader consensus on what might meet with approval. So November Central Council meeting gave broad support to the idea according to a subsequent statement released. The indications were that this weekend Central Council meeting would point the way towards Congress a few weeks later, but it's now likely to be addressed later this year with a decision on whether to split Division 3 and 4 teams after the provincial championships or after the second round of qualifiers, the key issue. Not, not for you? You're not buying that? We're just keeping the provincial championships for the sake of nonsense bullshit tradition. Like, it makes no sense. The system is broken... It makes no sense. No one's going to the games anymore. It makes no sense. It's not getting any better. The key point, though, is that it's not just tradition. It's the power of provincial councils who get revenue from these provincial matches. Give them a cut from every game that takes place in their province and match the same amount that they're getting. And then like, do, do, that, do those backroom deals and give us a blank slate and say, what's the best way to organise... 32 teams. Hmm. I wish 32 was a nice, easily divisible number. If only we could do the maths to go, mm, you know, if only they've worked in like four equal divisions of something or other. Well, they'll tell you that there's actually 33 counties that play in the football championship. So. There aren't. Well, there New aren't. York. New York, London, but no Kilkenny. Yeah. But at New York, sorry lads. You can, play in the, you can play in the pre-season tournament, which is like the Connacht Championship, and come over and back and... Away we go. Them versus Kilkenny can be like a mini-tournament. Yeah, the winners get to play the All-Stars <laughs> in New York every year. Or Singapore. Yeah. All right, Sports Wednesday. Sexton ruled out a Wasp clash. Frustrated Gibson Park battling for game time on two fronts. Uh, New Zealand are set to make his first start for Leinster in the Champions Cup against Wasps. This is with the uh, eight weeks that were expected Luke McGrath to be out. Half many included an extended squad, so the Wales have named their squad. Warren Gatland very confident that uh, Wales are going to be the team to beat in this year's Six Nations. I would agree with them. Munster Tully is on the right track to knocking okay. Munster off the perch. How can, you, how can you possibly say that Wales are the team to beat? Okay, they, fair enough you think they're going to win Fair enough if you, if you believe that they're... got Ireland at home. They've but the best like, The team to beat me suggests that they are the best team unquestionably in this current competition. The team to beat, I would say, suggests they're Ireland's. the team most likely to win. I don't know if Ireland are going to play all their best players in every game. I don't know. Maybe, maybe they are. Maybe this is going to be like this signature statement where we slalom our way to a Grand Slam hammering teams. Maybe I know that's what I, we're going to do. I know I'm being pedantic here, but that does not signify the team to beat. The team to beat are Ireland. Like, the best team in the competition, the one that everybody wants to take down, is us. Okay. Wales, you can say, are probably going to win it, but if you, if you can make that case... 
Great they're point. not the team to beat. Great point. Back page of the Irish Daily Mail is Schmidt, Woe, McGrath out of Six Nations as injuries pile up. And uh, there's that Sen and Connell story as well. The dubs won't take back Connolly, he says. Back page of the Herald is Kane's pain, Troy's gain. Dublin team, Parrot gets Spurs chance with Harry out till March. And Keane thrashing out number two deal with Nottingham as well on the back page there. Back page of the Irish Daily Star is Miracle Worker. O'Neill will get transfer funds to guide Forrest back to the Premier League. And we've had a, a couple of interesting stories from Manchester United, as you've already mentioned. But uh, another one here this morning. It might not be Marcus Rojo that's departing Old Trafford. It might be Marouane Fellaini. He set, according to Jeremy Cross here in the Star, to become the first casualty of Solskjaer's reign. He's completed, completed 31 minutes of first-team action under the Norwegian at this point and uh, apparently Solskjaer doesn't really fancy him according to this particular newspaper report so it's Fellaini versus Rajo who's going to be the first sale from Ole Gunnar Solskjaer we'll see in a couple of days and weeks I do suspect uh, back page of the mirror is Calamity Kane her for Spurs a striker is ruled out until March missing 11 key games and uh, Harry Kane is also on the back page of the Guardian but the main story here is that the Arsenal plan is left in tatters with key man set to walk away so that's Ben Mislintat the head of recruitment the hot shot from Dortmund they signed about a year and a half ago. He's leaving Arsenal. He was signed by even Gazidis. Gazidis, of course, has moved on to AC Milan, so it's worrying times from an Arsenal perspective. Uh, front page of the Daily Telegraph is relief for Rafa as uh, Newcastle United beat Blackburn 4-2 away from home after extra time in the FA Cup. And then finally on the back page of the Sun is we won't choke. Mane, sure, Reds can be champions at last. But I do want to bring one more uh, story from the Sun because uh, it's kind of been a trend on the show this week where we've been speaking about veganuary. Of course, Keith Andrews on the show yesterday was speaking about uh, how he's all for veganism. But, you are too. Uh, yeah, well, Keith's actually followed through on it. I'm, I'm all talk, no action. But uh, the idea of veganism has taken a hammer blow this morning, Ger, because people who don't eat meat don't work hard, according to TD Danny Healy Ray. So we need to have a good look at uh, Keith Andrews' productivity. He says, Go on. If there was a shovel oh. put into their hands. No, you have to. Uh, where, what part of the world is he from? from uh, he's from, uh, from Kerry, isn't he? No, from what part of Kerry? Uh, like southwest, southeast Kerry. Kilgarvan, is it? No, uh, Kilgarvan. Kilgarvan. So you have to do, it says here, get him to do a Kilgarvan accent. I can't really do it. I can't do accents. People know that. Come on. If there was a shovel put into their hands, they'd starve with the hunger, says uh, Danny Healy Ray. Yeah, kind of went for that. Do it again. Go for oh, it well, there's, there's more quotes here. Uh, Healy Ray, 56, of Kilgarvan County, Kerry Carpt. Them fellas that are talking about stopping people eating meat have never worked hard. If you're a hard worker, do a day's work, there's nothing to bring you back to revive you again than a piece of good meat. Whether it is bacon and cabbage, or whether it is beef or mutton stew, if you don't have that, you won't rise out the following day. Did you have your beef and, beef and mutton stew yesterday? Is that why you're so awake and sprightly this morning? Uh, I, I actually did have a... Do you have beef and mutton in the same stew? I, is that what he's I, saying here? I don't know. Do you? So that's like a, that's yeah. a meaty feast right yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I suppose you've got to use up those little bits of mutton. The, you, can, you can actually hear the sheep and cows screaming in Kilgarvan at the moment. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure they use the humane killer. Uh, right, let's move on. We're going to talk about um, our out half and scrum half death chart with Andy Dunn in a minute. Here we are talking about, well, this guy's definitely going to come up for conversation. This is Joey Carberry being discussed by Joe and Rory O'Connor about uh, Carberry pushing Jackson. Have a look. You know, ostensibly his bad foot is able to put that, put that beautiful chip through and it just summed up how calm he looked on the night and how dominant Munster were as well, that they were able to give him the time and space where he could thrive and, and deliver a performance that really marks... You know, we, we all knew he was talented, we all knew he was going to do... I think we all were comp- fairly confident he was going to do well in Munster, but, you know, there was a bit of... Uh, you know, he had a hiccup in cast. He, 
there, there was always going to be growing pains to a degree. You know, he hasn't had a huge amount of experience in town, but he, that was the most comfortable he's looked in a big game since he's gone down to Munster. And, and you know, he almost almost announced himself as a as a rival to Johnny Sexton. I don't know if we're quite there yet, but yeah, how, Johnny, much an, how much of an almost is that now? Because I saw those those mumblings happening this weekend. Yeah, I think it was um, Austin Healy uh, mischievous, mischievously threw it out there on BT on Friday night, and I think it was kind of half a joke. But by the end, it was less of a joke, you know. And I think look, Johnny's a world player of the year. He's brilliant and and has is, you know at his best remains the best <laughs> that is out there. Yeah, and I think, but I think if. This knee injury that you know that has kept him out for the last couple of weeks proves to be more serious because we never quite know with with injuries in Irish rugby. I think there's less concern now that Joey uh, Joey Carby starting with Ross Byrne on the bench, even against England, with Conor Murray alongside him and, and the, t- the players they can put around them. You know, World Cup final, you still want Johnny Sexton starting, but we saw maybe on Stephen or on the 29th that Joey Carby's a little bit in Johnny Sexton's head. You know, when he tr- yeah. Okay, that was an interesting point there by uh, Rory at the end. Andy Donis here. Andy, good morning to you. Good morning, Chair. We're here to talk depth charts. We'll talk about the World Cup squad, not the World Cup squad, the Six Nations squad in a minute. But we'll mm. we'll start with the depth chart for out half. Um, it's going to be fairly obvious, I think, that at the top of that depth chart is Johnny Sexton right now. Yes, right? So he's, I think that's fair enough as the World Player of the Year. Yeah, yeah. he's on 10. Uh, Joey Carby's on 7. I want to add Carby up around 8.5, 9, 9.5. Yes, so would I. Uh, I tried to get Tom, <laughs> I tried to get Tommy to change that about five minutes ago in the studio. So, uh, no, I, I, uh, yeah, I would have Joey up beyond the 7. I would have Ross Byrne beyond the 6. And I'd probably have Jack Carty, not as a overall view that he's a 5 out of 10 rugby player, but relative to where he is with Johnny Sexton being a 10 and a likely starter. Yeah, so we should explain yeah. this. 10 is a likelihood to start. So 10, 10 is he's 100% likely to start when he's fit. Um, that's what we're saying. And the, the rest of them, is, the pecking order is is fairly well established. I thought Ross Byrne did really well at the weekend. Yeah. Um, in you know, Again, it was behind a fairly dominant pack, so it would be nice to see him play a match where that pack is getting destroyed and they still win because of him yeah. somehow carrying the team. You know, it's an unusual scenario for Leinster these days. It doesn't happen very much. Yeah, I... What Rory mentioned on, on Monday Night Rugby there with Joe, to me, is probably a, a key point. We were very reliant on Johnny, um, and I think now what what we're dealing with is a scenario, and a, and a very viable one, where Johnny picks up a knock or Johnny's knee doesn't come through for the England game, uh, and that there's a, there's a far greater degree of comfort uh, among supporters, probably among management and among... Uh, more importantly the, the team itself and teammates that Joey is perfectly suited to, to run in there and start and Ross Byrne similarly is a guy who can who has a presence about him now that has a level of command around operating a team under duress yeah. um, he hasn't been behind a pack that's been hockeyed but most Irish 10s or provincial 10s in the last 2-3 to three years haven't yeah. either we, we're, we're quite dominant you could argue We've we've the best forward pack or squad of forwards in the world at the moment, right up there. One or two, uh, obviously we're ranked in the top two in the world nationally. But but in terms of out half play, we're not seeing out halves who have to manage their way through chaos. They're out halves who are sitting in an armchair the yeah. vast majority of time. Um, and both Carberry and and Byrne have progressed so significantly in the last you know six to twelve months that I think. You know, it's not as uh, damaging should Johnny 
pick up a knock anymore. And I think that's a massive plus for Irish rugby. It definitely is. And I think when people talk about depth, we speak about it as with regards to the squad as a whole. And when we speak about the 2015 World Cup, we talk about the bloodbath that was France. Sure. I often wonder what would have happened if that bloodbath had still happened, except for Johnny Sexton getting injured. Yeah. It, I, like, I know it's, it's a huge thing to say that Johnny Sexton would have, would have swung the Argentina game. But mm. ultimately, mm. from the start, having Johnny Sexton on that occasion, regardless of Paul O'Connell, regardless of Amani, O'Brien, whatever this would have been perhaps a different outcome. I'm not sure. Like I think that's just been really important for Schmidt over the last couple of years to have that back up at 10. Yeah, well, I think where, where that, that becomes relevant is the style of play we, we have with Johnny as a 10. He's, he's, it's, it's very hierarchical and everything, all roads lead towards Johnny's decisions. Um, and that's been very effective. And it's worked for Irish rugby and it's worked for Johnny and it's worked for Joe. Um, the, the worry for, for people from the outset looking in is should Johnny go we then have a very different structure on the field and that structure is not all roads lead to Joey Carberry and all roads lead to Ross Byrne there becomes a a diluted responsibility among the group senior players step in other people take a bit more control so they start to share responsibility a bit more it's just when Johnny is there I think he's so forceful and, and a natural commanding presence that people will look to Johnny for guidance and leadership and in his absence I think that's why it was so key in that Argentina game back in 2015 when Johnny when Johnny uh, was injured and didn't play <coughs> it wasn't something the team were used to uh, functioning without him we've become used to functioning without him there's a shared responsibility when he's not there and it's a, actually a slightly different style of rugby we play Yeah, um, but it's not necessarily as damaging as it once was we got killed in that Argentina game though because they attacked us out wide in a way that we were unprepared for. Yeah. And um, that type of smash and grab in a one-off game can easily happen in a World Cup quarterfinal. At, yeah, at any given moment. Like, yes. uh, are we ready? Are we going to, you know, what the, what the challenge at South Africa or New Zealand who we will face if we make it to a quarterfinal? We're probably ready for the challenge at New Zealand in that we have a fair idea of what their game plan is going to be. I mean, I wouldn't be... Yeah, we've probably have a fair idea what what the Springboks one is going to be as well, do we? There's no um, chance of them suddenly morphing into no, I think Argentina and running it from everywhere. Well, I think where wide, wide. possibly not with South Africa, but I think one of the challenges facing um, the Irish side is even against the likes of uh, an Argentinian side, I think a Scottish side first up who play a similar style of rugby. Yeah. The the problem is, and, and uh, the, the All Black skills coach for the last two World Cups, Mick Byrne, is on record regularly as saying, if we don't know what we're going to do, the opposition definitely don't. Um, and uh, it's a very practical, I don't think he's being blasé. They, they have an approach where it's move the ball, use width, pass out of the tackle, but they don't have five, six, seven phase, phases of rugby prescribed. So they don't have templates. They don't have something you can watch on the video and say, the All Blacks do this, then they move here, then they move here. They don't. They are entirely unpredictable. So if you're <coughs> the Irish side trying to analyse that, you've got to be comfortable with not knowing what's coming your way. You know the general style, but you can't anticipate I suppose systems and uh, that is an issue that I think Ireland have got a lot better at managing um, the Argentinian one was was a bit you know they caught us completely on the hop but they had been playing that way for about a year or two in the lead up to the World Cup the thing was they got very much they very much improved at executing that style of play the Argies lost 78-12 to South Africa 
18 months before the last World Cup playing that way. Uh, but they learned f how to do it better. And by the time they hit the 2015 World Cup, they peaked, unfortunately, against a weakened Irish side. But um, I think we've got better in general at, at anticipating how teams are going to play. But we can't ever you know, unpick what the All Blacks are going to do next. Yeah, we had Keith Earls at 13 as well. Yeah. meant that we didn't have him on the wing. Yeah. Uh, as a defender, and it also meant that we didn't have somebody at uh, 13 who was marshalling our defence. Like Jared Payne wasn't there. I just sure. forgot that Payne was gone as well. Yeah, no, it was. Um, we, the spine was taken out of our sight. Um, it was hugely significant. Um, but I would, I'd, I'd lean towards what Owen was saying earlier. I, of all those injuries in, in that, that challenged us, I think the absence of Sexton that day is the one that changed the style with which we played the most. The absence of O'Malley, O'Connell were significant in terms of leadership, but how you actually play on the field, the absence of Sexton was the one that affected us most. It's interesting when you talk about the idea of if we don't know what we're going to do, then the opposition don't know what we're going to do. And Well, we don't. We seem to know exactly well, what that, we're going to do. That's exactly <laughs> it. I'm taking that idea on and the, the potential that we're perhaps too prescriptive yeah. in what we do. It's obviously the strength of... I, I think they were talking about it, Bernard Jackman was talking about it in a pay-per-view on Sunday, that the, it, it may seem unprescriptive what they do carrying off rooks in the Leinster squad, but it's very, it is very prescriptive. They know exactly what they're about to do. Like, is that, a, is that a danger from the out-half perspective that we, we fall into a trap where we have a planned move, we know exactly what Johnny Sexton is going to do, despite the fact that he can execute it probably better than anybody in the world? It's, I, I think there's a danger in, in general in being prescriptive because it allows you, you can, an opposition team will analyse us and it can make us slightly predictable. But the counter-argument to it is our execution levels are so good at the moment that it's very hard to stop even when you know it's coming. Mm. Um, and then underneath that, we've got a strength in depth, which are probably two, three deep now in most positions, which actually allows us to replicate that over an 80-minute period. We can, we can play at that intensity level and repeat it and repeat it, and then we can flo you know, f bring the bench to flood onto the field, refresh guys to, to do this same level of execution. Um, so that's the counter-argument. My, my concern in, as a general rule watching the, the Irish style is, is, again, that rook count. We average about 140 rooks per game, and the other f top five teams in the world average about 80 per game. So we've 60 additional rooks to win an international relative to other international sides. 60 more chances to get injured. Well, I mean, at the moment it's not affecting us because we're winning all the rooks, we're winning the matches, um, and the quest it's just a question to say, is it is it very demanding or too demanding physically to do back-to-back -back for seven weeks to win a World Cup? And you could just as easily counter-argue, well, we've got greater strength and depth in order to do it. So there's just uh, that's one area where, I suppose, of differentiation for us relative to other international sides at the moment that's probably worth flagging, but we seem to be managing What causes the rooks? The lack of offloads, more often than not. Most of our forward runners... Will will tuck and and seek out contact and probably run at an angle where their head is looking at the floor. They're going to hit the floor and they're 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 preempted to hit a rook in order to set up a next phase. If if you look at the Scottish team, for example, or even Ulster, the way Ulster played against Racing on Saturday, um, it was a bit like watching the LA Lakers against you know you know another uh, NBA side. It was very few guys were looking at the floor in order to set up a rook 
to do the, the next phase that was in the plan because there wasn't a plan and the game was entirely broken up. Now it was mayhem, uh, it was chaos for, for the vast majority of 80 minutes but better sides and better execution can reduce that level of chaos. We, we, we don't embrace that as a national side. Um, we, we hit a lot of rooks but we're very good at it. If you were Josh Smith now, right, um, knowing that you're coming to the end of your tenure and knowing mm-hmm. that no one has ever made it past the quarterfinals yeah. and that your style of play so far has been utterly reliant on Johnny Sexton, do you use this injury as an excuse to see what happens when, in a massive game, yeah. we start with a 10 who isn't Johnny Sexton and you put in Joey Carberry? The whole point of your experiment that you forced through <laughs> was that you were going to have Joey Carberry available as a 10 yeah. for big games. And now you need to see how he does in those big games. And mm. don't tell me Italy is a big game because it ain't. Yeah. So let's go. Let's roll. Yeah, I would. I would. I would. Be, I'd be quite surprised if Joe doesn't give Joey Carberry a start in one of the Six Nations games. He gave him a start. He in, gave him a start in the Italy game. We'll all be like, oh yeah, that's no, great. He gave him a start in Australia in the first test away from home, mm. and we were winning when Joey went off the field. So I mean, history has a way of of being vague at times. And people go, look, we lost the first test, Johnny Sexton didn't start. But we were winning when Joey Carberry left the field after 60 minutes in the first test, away in Australia. Now, I think Johnny's impact in the second and third tests were huge, and we, we reversed a 1-0 deficit. But it is instructive and important to look at the fact John, uh, Joey started in Australia when Johnny was fit. Joe gave him uh, the selection, and I'm sure Johnny wasn't overly happy about it. I don't think he was. But it was a smart move. It was probably a reward uh, to Joey for moving to Munster and um, there was a lot going on at that stage um, but Joey did well in that 60 minute period so he's he, he's worked under stress he's worked as a first choice selection in a big test match away from home and I think on the back of that Australia performance and then the recent performances for Munster in the, in the Heineken and the Pro 14 I would be quite surprised if uh, Joe Schmidt doesn't give him a nod for one of the big games not the Italy game the England game being the perfect example where you I, still have this oh Sexton's ready to go we could play him but actually we just want to give him that little extra week to make sure he's fully fit uh, everybody I, uh, yeah you know the cover of darkness if they want it basically they could they could um, they use all the time yes as Rory said Irish injuries are hard to uh, explain uh, <laughs> at times well I mean they're, they're fully within their rights to, to keep it to themselves sometimes but it does pique interest and curiosity more at times yes yeah. um yeah, I, I don't know, will he go ahead and, and give Joey a, a start against England? I think my what I would do as a, a betting man would say Joey will get a start in one of the bigger games, but I'm not sure it'll be England. All right, I mean, I, I, yeah, I definitely won't be surprised if it does happen in that one. Let's move on to the scrum house, because obviously uh, here we have a, another 10 situation with Conor Murray. Behind him is Luke McGrath. We're going to probably recalibrate this in the right now, because Luke McGrath's out for eight weeks, it's been confirmed. Okay. It's... Um, is it medial ligament damage? Certainly knee ligament knee, damage. Anyway, yeah, okay. Um, John Cooney. I mean, I think that John Cooney is just one of the most unfortunate people at the moment in Irish rugby, where the opportunity last weekend was there yes. in a game which ultimately they were going to win. Yeah. Like, I, well, I don't think it was a guarantee they were going to beat Rossing last week. No, but um, and actually. Dave, Dave Shannon came in and did a really, really impressive job. I know he's not a, he looks young, Dave Shannon, but he's twenty five and he's been around the Ultra Squad for a while. But he did uh, he had a really, really good game and, and he was actually the one 
rock of sense in that Ulster side and as I mentioned before at times looked like the LA Lakers throwing the ball around <laughs> except uh, for the fact that he started a fight against a big guy that, yeah, that was no, probably the most sense m- most scrum halves need to be a little bit <laughs> chirpy and punchy and it was actually good to see that uh, in his game Yeah, uh, but actually he was very controlled very measured passing was good uh, some of his box kicks were excellent his work rate was good so to be fair to Shanahan he stepped into the breach very well in terms of Cooney uh, very unfortunate but the injury profile across our nines all four of them at the moment is a little worrying with Murray's uh, neck history McGrath has picked up an ankle injury at crucial stages last year which affected his, his form and yeah. affected his selection um, Marmion's had a couple of knocks and now uh, Cooney I'm not sure what the actual nature of his injury is but Dan McFarlane wouldn't confirm on Saturday actually pre or post game um, McGrath's injury has a medial ligament probably six to eight weeks yeah it's not something that's going to affect his World Cup uh, you know in terms of being fit at that stage but it's certainly going to affect his chances in you know Six Nations it rules him out and that massively affects his chances yeah. so I think we do have to maybe Marmion's going to be back in the middle of, of I would have thought Marmion's going to be second choice there yeah. now straight away um, from my point of view I had Cooney there uh, ahead of Marmion if everyone's fit I think there's very little difference between McGrath and Marmion um, and Cooney is a place kicker and I think if you're bringing three scrum halves to a World Cup a guy who can place kick at his level is worth having as an additional string to his bow which is probably maybe his unique selling point relative to the other two scrum halves who are yeah. very similar That's interesting so do you think Joe Schmidt would go along with the idea that Marmion is fourth placed and not getting on the plane if everybody's fit? No I don't think Joe's going <laughs> to agree with me on this one <laughs> that's just my own opinion I think Joe's it seems to be Joe's um, favourite options at the moment I I think fairly clearly are, are obviously Murray and then it seems to be Marmion as, yeah. a, as a clear second choice um, from my point of view I think um, McGrath is probably a little bit better around the field in terms of his, his contribution in attack second touches support lines even his, his try scoring rate is quite high for a nine um, their, their passing is very very uh, similar McGrath and Marmion and their work rate similar. They're just very, very similar players. Both of them have reasonable box kicks, not as good as Murray, but a reasonably good command of that area. So with very little to decide between those two, uh, you look at Cooney again, who's probably maybe not as good around the field as the two of those in terms of his attack, but is a serious backup option as a place kicker. And if we look at the last World Cup and problems around injuries and sudden a sudden truckload of injuries to have a guy who can place kick at European level under pressure is worthwhile being in your squad yeah, Definitely, yeah. it's it's become a little bit less important since Joey Sexton has or, or since, Joey Carby yeah there you go uh, since <laughs> Carby's nailed 17 in a row after the cast game suddenly it's like oh, you've, him and Byrne you would expect yes. to be able to and Murray being there as well so, yeah um, absolutely yeah. But certainly six weeks ago you were like oh, it's very important to have a nine who can also kick and take a bit of pressure off a, yeah. a young ten yeah. who hasn't shown the ability just yet to yeah. and, and all of a sudden it's like not an issue absolutely yeah and I think we've got uh, an issue where things can change very quickly in terms of form for players uh, like you said six weeks ago there was huge question marks on Joey's ability to kick like Raj would have done in a European game away from home but you can't put you can't do any better silencing your critics than knocking the next 17 over winning four games and 26 points uh, in, in Gloucester away from home so uh, a huge a huge measure of Joey's resilience actually in the last 
four to six weeks. A question here about Hugh O'Sullivan um, and his potential to play nine for Leinster at some point, maybe even as early as uh, this weekend. That's unlikely, isn't it? Jameson Gibson Park going to get the nod. Yeah, I would have thought uh, Gibson Park um, is a shoe in. However, I think I think Leinster have earmarked Hugh O'Sullivan um, since his his days playing. He was, uh, I think, a double schools cup winner with. Belvedere College. However, he actually won won both his medals as a fullback. Right, but um, he he was their scrum half, and they they wanted to get it. Uh, they wanted to get him in, you know, broken field playing. They moved him out wide, so he played at fullback at schools level with his preferred position being nine. But as soon as he left school, he's he's one of the first guys that Leinster have brought straight into the academy in recent two or three years, which is always instructive. A lot of guys now go through the club system or the sub-academy system and have to work their way into that academy system. But to get straight into it out of your school, um, see your last school season, um, doesn't happen a lot. And I think he's been earmarked by uh, senior management in Leinster as a guy with real potential. So um, it's nice to see that pushing through now. In, uh, a year after or two years after he's left school, he's actually a regular on the match day squad. Yeah. But I don't think he'll start on Saturday. Yeah, there, he's actually been talked up in the papers this morning saying that he's the type of guy who hangs around for a couple hours after training and stuff like that. He's a hard worker by all accounts, Joe Sullivan. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think that's brilliant. It's a great. I just laughed. I, I, I used to go and place kick uh, on my own in a different ground so I could concentrate. But Tom Tierney, who was former Irish international was playing with me down in Connacht drove past me in Galwegians got out of the car and said what are you doing kicking on your own and I said well, I'm just doing extras he said extras don't count unless the coaches can see yeah, it yeah yeah <laughs> so I was uh, you know I was all doing all the extra, extra work but no one could see yeah, it so, Jesus. Uh, yeah it's great that Hugh O'Sullivan is sticking around very visible in front of the yeah. coaching staff to do the work <laughs> The, the other doing person, all the right things. Uh, the other person in that position who obviously is uh, going to become a, a name from an Irish perspective over the next couple of weeks is Caelan Blade because of the injury profile of uh, the rest of the squad. Mm. What's your take on Blade? Is uh, is he a potential bolter if the injury profile is particularly grim come the end of the year? Yes. Well, I mean, his. I think his issue for me technically is is his passing. Um, does need improvement to be to be even even high-level European games, it'll come under pressure more. Um, I noticed in, in the Munster game, um, and, and just a, a trend in recent matches, he, you know, for every five to six passes he'll do, there'll be, there'll be one kind of wobbler. And compare that to, to McGrath, Marmion, um, certainly comparing it to Murray, where pretty much every, every pass he makes is hitting the sponsor's sign you know, on the jersey of his 10. Um, there's a... There's a a consistency to that that is invaluable in terms of how the team attacks in general. That split second that the speed and accuracy of a nines pass gives to the whole team attack is huge. And I think Blade, that's just an area for him to work on. He's a full-time professional. I'm sure he's working on it every day. Um, but I do see him as a general, as a nine. The rest of his game is excellent. Physicality, work rate, speed, a threat around the fringes. They're all huge positives, but his, his one and key job as a nine is to be a brilliant passer, and I think he needs to work on that. Super bonus points for the name, though. I mean, you know, going to have you know, a blade in your squad. Yeah, sounds like a superhero. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Come on. Uh, look, the squad is being named today. Do you expect any surprises or any shocks or anything specific you're looking out for? Uh, no, not particularly. I think uh, status quo. Um, I'd be interested to see, um, does Quinn Rue feature? He seems to be... He likes uh, Quinn Rue, doesn't he? seems to be an ever-present in the squad. Um, at times, I, I find it strange that... 
Now he obviously sees something in terms of his physicality. He's 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 got he's a big physical dude, and he does a lot of work in terms of carrying. Um, and I, I would imagine he's he's given a lot of uh, leverage in the scrum. So you know, to, you know, yeah. in terms of what he can add value with in terms of just strength and scrummaging and and uh, his weight. But the likes of Ulton Delan, who who have been omitted um, underneath Quinn Rue, um, I, I would be interested to see what he goes with on that selection. Yeah, okay. In the back row as well, just to, if everybody is fit, somebody somewhere is going to get left out. Yes, yeah. Um, that that is probably um, the most difficult area, the the area of the greatest depth. I think potentially Jordy Murphy. Um, one of Jordy Murphy or um, I forgot. I'm somehow managed to have forgotten his name. Dan Levy or Dan Levy. Sorry, yeah. yeah. Dan Levy or Murphy. Just given that they've had recent injuries, could potentially lose out. Which again, if you look at the quality of players, they are is uh, is quite a huge omission. Yeah, because like if Jordy Murphy makes the squad, the chances are he makes the match day match yes, day squad because of his versatility. versatility yeah, his line out work. In fact, he plays eight seven and, and arguably six. Yeah. yeah. Um, you've Jack Conan there. You've Tommy O'Donnell. Yeah, there's a lot going on. I yeah. I don't envy him trying to yeah. pick that that uh, section. Good stuff. Well, you picked your nines and tens for us this morning. Uh, thanks very much for that. So Tommy Bow is going to join us to do our back three depth chart next Friday morning. We're also going to do the centres next week as well. Andy, good stuff. Thanks very much for that. Darren's going to be in studio with us next. Declan Varley joins Raf Diallo on Team Thirty Three this week to chat about the story of Marcel Bugdov, uh, one of the greatest football transfer rumours ever told. What happened 10 years ago today was that this, the Times of London, which is the paper, the oldest paper in the world to be covering football, actually compiled its list of the 50 best young players, and he was named at number 30, which yeah, is amazing. Yeah, and actually, I have, the, I have the entry here in front of me. It's obviously, as you said, number 30, he plays for Olympia Balti. Moldova's finest, the 16-year-old attacker, has been strongly linked with a move to Arsenal, work permit permitting, and he's been linked with plenty of other top clubs as well. Based yeah. on what was out there... It's not that far off, but of course, it is based off of a hoax. In totally, totally. And that list was syndicated around the world because January, this time of the year, people see these lists. I'm sure they're in all the papers for the last while during the silly season of the transfer window. And people read them. People want to see the list. So that list was syndicated by the Times, who would be in a very authoritative uh, football publication. And that was sent around the world. And it sort of gathered legs. But, but what happened is that a Russian journalist spotted it, a Russian journalist uh, who covered Moldovan football, and he just made a comment saying, this player doesn't exist, you know? And this was picked up by Slate and a blogger called Brian Phillips, who then went on a, a kind of a, an investigative search to see what was what happening here. And uh, within days, they had um, um, uh, sort of clarified that Bogdov didn't exist, but there was some, but he was, at that stage, the Times realized this. They went in to, to take him out of the top, instead of moving everybody up one and taking him out, they took him out totally and they replaced him by a player who wasn't in the original top 50, a player called Jay Simpson, who ironically did play for Arsenal at the yeah. time. So he went from sort of not being in the top 50 at all to suddenly being number 30 in the world. And of course, when this mistake was, was highlighted, the whole uh, bug dove story sort of sort of grew legs and got bigger and bigger and multiplied. Did they explain that Mossel Bugdov is Maasel Bjogdov, my little black donkey? I don't know if they did or not, but uh, that's where it came from. So, great story there. You can get the rest of that on Team 33. You can subscribe to the Team 33 podcast, or of course you can also get it on uh, their Twitter feed. Um, I think the Twitter handle is at Team 33. Uh, now, Darren is here with news of... 
the golf, which is sensational news from an Irish perspective, on the opening day. But uh, let's get carried away. Let's allow ourselves to get carried away. It's absolutely brilliant news, Jerry. I didn't think we'd be uh, able to take our eyes off the tennis this week. I thought that would hog the limelight in the early mornings. But it is Shane Lowry's sensational start to the Abu Dhabi Championship that we're going to be talking about. The Offaly man carded 10 birdies. He's finished up now. He's three clear of the chasing pack. Louis Westhazen just behind him. But a really, really sensational start from Shane Lowry to the his first t- uh, event of the season on the European Tour. And he's been... Very, very impressive. Yeah, so last year we had the iconic golf moment at East Lake when Tiger Woods is walking down the 18th and there is a stream of people following him like the Messiah. This year I can picture it, Portrush, Shane Lowry walking down the 18th, a sea of people behind him. Tiger was back as was the talk of 2018, Lowry's back as the talk of 2019, I'm calling it now. Yeah, around a 62, very much go. so back. There's the tweet. Uh, since the Abu Dhabi Golf Championships started 14 years ago, only one player shot 10 under or better. Shane Lowry is 10 under playing his last hole. So he uh, had a birdie putt, just a bit short and a bit right. Was uh, VJ the last person to do it, I presume? Uh, that's, uh, no, Stenson. Stenson is, is who yeah. you're shaking hands with. Yeah, Stenson was the only man to do it so far. But an incredible start for Shane Lowry. Hopefully he can continue it. In the soccer, Newcastle needed extra time goals to overcome Blackburn in the FA Cup third round last night. That was a replay. The Magpies won it 4-2. Bit of an injury concern. Kieran Clark went off injured, as did the man who replaced him, Jamal Lasselle. Sheffield Wednesday will take on the holders Chelsea following a 1-0 win over Luton. League 1 Shrewsbury Town pulled off the shock of the night coming from 2-0 down to win 3-2 at Stoke City. Martin O'Neill will return to the dugout this weekend as he takes charge of Nottingham Forest for the championship clash with Bristol City. After the formalities were completed yesterday, O'Neill went straight to the training pitch where he was joined by Steve Guppy and the goalkeeping coach Seamus McDonough. Both will be part of O'Neill's staff with Ireland. Roy Keane could also make a return to his former club. Reports in Nottingham suggest that the talks are ongoing with the Corkman and he's had a second meeting with them. Forest are hopeful that he will be added to the staff. O'Neill, also a Forest legend, you can see him there taking a tour of his old haunted ground, affectionately dubbed as one of the miracle men, helped the club win the league and lift two European Cups. He made an emotional return to the club yesterday and Forest fans have greeted the news with enthusiasm on social media. They're very happy to see Martin O'Neill back in the hot seat. Sligo Rovers have signed up a Jamaican international for next season. Romeo Parks has swapped Pittsburgh Riverhounds in America for the showgrounds of Sligo. The 28-year-old can play on either wing or up front and has four caps for Jamaica. Shells have strengthened their squad as they mount a promotion push for 2019. Luke Byrne has joined from Shamrock Rovers. The experienced defender made 105 appearances for the hoops across his spell there. 97 of those were starts. Shells also signed Darren Noon from Bray yesterday. In Gaelic games, former Dublin footballer Senan Connell has ruled out a return to the fray for Dermot Connolly. The St. Vincent's man walked away from the panel last spring, having featured in just one Alliance League game as a sub against Mayo. Connolly then went to Boston to play football for the summer, but returned to action with the Marino men then. Despite playing club football once again in Dublin, Connell doesn't see any way back in blue for a man he has called a genius in the same interview in the Irish Examiner and across a number of publications today. We don't know why he's gone, he's quoted as saying, or why he left, so we don't know he's ever going to be asked back but what we do know is that Jim is ruthless he was looking forward and he was looking for the replacement and they have found that replacement in Brian Howard yeah I mean I don't think Brian Howard is a like for like obviously and Howard's more of a midfielder is is not Scully more the replacement really in that he nailed down his starting position I thought you just look at the number on the back I think that was the fair enough the reference but I, Howard has 
it was interesting in that they make the point that a year ago when Connolly did a, a dose of interviews, he mentioned that Howard was the superstar. Howard was the one to watch, and yeah. then Howard kind of came. And you, you wouldn't say he usurped him because Connolly wasn't there to com- compete for the place, but yeah. he, he took the jersey and took it on over him. Right. So, what do you think, as our resident blue-eyed Dublin fan? Uh, I would love to see him come back. I definitely think a player like that has something to offer. I think there's an argument to be made that he's one of the most natural, naturally gifted players to ever play the game. And it's a shame to see at his age that he's, uh, for reasons I don't think relating to football, not playing football at the moment. So Jim should, uh, Jim should pick the phone up and ring him and say, come back. Jim should ask him what his plans are. I think any good manager should find out what players you have available and ask him do they have any interest. Like it's, I, I don't think it's a standoff. I don't think it's a personality issue. By all accounts, there was no personal issues or animosity between Gavin and Connolly. Connolly said, look, I, I want to do something different. Gavin said, good, good luck to you. He did the same with Jack McCaffrey. He did the same with Paul Mannion. He did the same with Rory O'Carroll when they wanted to go off and try something different. And what happened with uh, those two? There was roads back for them. Yeah. So there's absolutely a way back. It kind of has to happen now, doesn't it? You, you would want to see him on the bench for a few league games getting a few minutes here and there and getting the opportunity to get back in the team like, the thing is the Dublin panel were on a cruise to be before last uh, Jim Gavin is never on the sideline during the O'Byrne Cup they haven't really got their house in order for the season ahead just yet and they never do Like they had a, a long campaign last year they go on their team holiday in January maybe this is just a situation where we haven't got around to the fact that Dean McConnell is back in training with Dublin yet and there actually has been conversations that I've had Like I, I might just go through like, the, the, the Senate Connell quote with regards to the actual why this has happened. So, like, he says that if you talk to players from the little snippets that you might get in the off-season, they will talk about how selfless Connolly is in terms of his runs. But Connell, Connell says this, I'm not so sure whether he's that player or whether he believes he can play his way and that's the reason why he's gone. I've played on teams where that genius who might be a bit of a, I'm not going to say Dearman's a loose cannon, but the guy who might be a loose cannon needs a different sort of management. Players would accept that he is different and would accept that he maybe lives by different rules and you play him and he plays well. I'm not sure whether that's Jim's way, really. And the fact that Brian Howard has done a job and Jim was looking for the next replacement up there in that front six, I can't see it happening. I can't see him coming back. So it does seem that, that uh, Senna Connell is kind of making a... Systemic. Yeah. Like the system a, is too important to have somebody who doesn't fit the system. The free Jim, thinker. That Jim's system is the, the altar on which this team is going to succeed or fail and that with Connolly in you don't automatically have everybody fulfilling the roles the basketball precision which with, with which they beat Tyrone in the semi-final two years ago yep. is impossible if Connolly's playing and yet in the final when they needed it in the second half who was the one that they turned to? You got the sense though that Connolly's impulsiveness would frustrate Jim as much as he was happy with it because oftentimes it would it would come off and it would work because it would either be a sensational pass that would unlock the defence of the team they're playing against or it would be a brilliant score but there were times as well where the All-Ireland final the kick from the sideline where it was just kind of a, a hit and hope where they probably didn't need to do it Gavin mentioned afterwards then that you know decision making is very important at this level and you know cool heads need to prevail and he kind of made not a point to dig but it, he seemed to underline the fact that the impulsiveness of Dermot Connolly was something that didn't always help them it didn't hamper them but it maybe hampered Connolly himself. What are your four points down in an All Ireland final that impulsiveness could be quite an attractive thing? I, not for Jim Gavin at all. Well, I think Jim Gavin's success is built on the fact that these guys are regimented within an inch of their life and they have 
I hate the, the sentence, but a trust in the process. And they genuinely do buy into it that if they just keep doing what it is they're doing, but it will eventually work out for them. Nine times out of ten, he did exactly the right thing in those circumstances. Like he and he. Would, Gavin remembers the one. Gavin yeah, remembers the one out of but ten. Like I, I think that I don't know. I think that. Um, You just can't see anybody good enough this year to beat them, right? But we've seen we've seen teams be a little bit off in sport where uh, a challenger makes a massive seismic leap on the basis of something or other. And I, at the moment, it's hard to see who's going to make that seismic leap. Mayo under James Horne might do it. I, I have my doubts about Kerry at the moment. Just we'll, we'll, we'll wait and see how well they've wintered and, and whether or not everybody, you know, with a new management team, if they actually have the... If they can just automatically follow on from last season with progression, so maybe Dublin can get away with it this year. But you do feel like not having Conley is just a. For me, it'll always be a little asterisk that they couldn't get Conley back in the team. Can I just say that last year's All Ireland for Dublin being one of the easiest we've seen from a full season perspective in modern times was down to a lack of opposition. I mean, it was the first time that they've won an All Ireland without having to play Mayo or Kerry in that same year, and I know. People from Tyrone will say that that's unfair on us, but Tyrone are not the second best team in the country. Like people, like even non-Tyrone people probably believe that they are. I'm convinced that they are not the second best team in the country, and they weren't. Mayo said that the best team placed to take on Dublin last year. Mayo were. They would have probably got themselves into a better situation to take them on, despite the fact that it probably wouldn't have been at 2017 level, but it still would have been a hell of a lot of a better shot than Tyrone would have done. I like you can call me like one-eyed here as well. I really think that Kerry would have given them a better shot than anything they would have gotten in a semi-final or a final last year as well in the summer. They wouldn't have beaten them. They wouldn't have beaten them. But they would have given them uh, a, a closer run. It would have been a 40-minute game anyway. Like, that's, that's the thing. That's the thing. Like, you would take a 40-minute game in the contest. I think we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves in terms of this seismic gap between Dublin and the rest. It worked, out ni- it, it worked out nicely. Between- there was still a gap. Don't get me wrong. There's obviously still the best team in the country by a healthy margin. And a team to beat them will have to play the best game of their lives. But there was something despondent about the way they won the All-Ireland last year. That is because of what happened to Newbridge. That is because of uh, a, a quirk of, I don't know what the hell happened to Kerry in the Super 8s last year. Like, I, I, I genuinely think that it's not as grim as people think. That Dublin need to be looking at how they can still move forward. I don't think the idea of stagnation and keeping what they've got and so if is you're, a sensible idea. If, so if, if, if we're interpreting what Senator Connell says right, it's that the, the system is so well defined and so well set up that you can't add in the free radical of a free thinker. But you can play him full forward. Like, you can totally play him full forward, and that then gives you the option of uh, bringing anybody from that full forward line out further. Like, get him back in the team. At some point, you're going to need a little bit of something, maybe. If not this year, then certainly next year when Kerry are good again. No? He's absolutely. I, I, why not make the call? There's, I don't buy into the idea that Jim doesn't want to manage an ego or doesn't want to try and make Dermot Connolly into the player he wants him to be or doesn't feel that he can fit into a regimented structure I, I think Gavin has done a remarkable job in, in managing egos and I know the Dublin players will pride themselves on being humble and having a, a great humility in the group but the idea that elite sportsmen don't have egos is, is, is nonsense and Gavin has managed it in such a way in that he has kept a really dynamic group who don't they're not all personal friends they, they're not all best mates but they go and they do a job I think Connolly, they would be happy to see him back. I think they would welcome him back, and I think he would definitely add value to the team, even if there's a belief that they don't need him. They could survive without him. All right, what's next? Quaylen Blade said to make the cut. Was he? Yeah. Right? That's why we asked Andy about him earlier on. 
No one got the gag. No one got the gag. Ah, uh, Jesus. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No one got the gag. Caelan Blade set to make the cut as the Ireland squad for the Six Nations is revealed later. Joe Schmidt will name 38 players this afternoon for the opening round of games with England and Scotland. A knee injury will leave Luke McGrath sidelined for eight weeks. That opens the door for the uncapped Connacht scrum half to make the cut. The loss of Luke McGrath further compounded Leinster's misery. The province will also be without Johnny Sexton when they face Wasps in the Champions Cup on Sunday. The out-half is yet to recover from the knock suffered during the Interpro loss to Munster over Christmas. Rob Carney, Dan Levy also facing further assessments on quad and calf injuries. Sean O'Brien, Robbie Henshaw and Devon Toner will return to full training with the province this week and the English side are bottom of the pool and they've yet to win a game but Josh van der Fleer knows Wasps can still sting. I know they're a really dangerous side. They've had some really good wins um, and they have some really dangerous players. And I mean, especially if you kind of look at their mindset, um, we obviously had a good season last season and, and teams are kind of out to get us, I suppose. So I'd say I, I remember a game that sticks out in my head is uh, the Bath game we played a couple of years, two, three years ago um, where we had nothing on the line. We were out of the group and then we played... We played Bath at home and, and the kind of mindset we had there that we really wanted to, to put a marker down because it's been a disappointing season in Europe and I think that's what their kind of mindset will be. They want to go after us and, and kind of protect, uh, protect their home ground. Also keeping an eye on tennis this morning, immense defending champion Roger Federer is into the third round of the Australian Open. The six-time winner beat Dan Evans in straight sets. Defending women's champion Caroline Wozniacki booked her place in the next round with a 6-1, 6-3 win over Joanna Larson. A court has heard that David Duckenfield's extraordinarily bad failures led to the deaths of 96 wholly innocent fans at Hillsborough. The ex-policeman was not quick enough to take measures to free Liverpool supporters trapped in the fatal crush at the 1989 FA Cup semi-final. Jurors were told yesterday. Prosecutors said his actions contributed substantially to the tragic and unnecessary loss of life. Mr Duckenfield denies the gross negligence manslaughter of 95 fans. Reporter for Sky News Mike McCarthy was impressed in Crown Court yesterday. Once they were sworn in, the jury were told by the prosecuting barrister Richard Matthews QC that the failings on the day of the Hillsborough disaster by the match commander, former Chief Superintendent David Duckenfield, were extraordinarily bad and he said that they contributed substantially to the deaths of the victims. Uh, Mr Matthews said it is the prosecution's case that each of those who died did so as the result of participation in the wholly innocent activity of attending a football match as a spectator on the 15th of April 1989. He went on to say each died as a result of the extraordinarily bad failures by David Duckenfield in the care he took to discharge his personal responsibility on that fateful day. Uh, the former South Yorkshire police officer is charged with gross negligence manslaughter, a charge which he denies. Now, keep up to date with all the latest sports news and views on the website offtheball.com. Darren, good stuff. Thanks very much for that. Now, uh, late last night, not late last night, actually, but a minute to eight, um, the news was coming through from the House of Commons that uh, Theresa May had... Um, had her ass handed to her by uh, her own party and um, the rest of the uh, House at Westminster and uh, had had her vote crushed. Um, and then, step forward into the breach, Kevin Caban with this tweet. Have a look. It says, One good thing to come out of hashtag Brexit, then surely it's a united Ireland. Hashtag 32 counties. Uh, so his, his 
um, Twitter account blew up and um, the internet generally but there wasn't much of a backlash there really wasn't so the lads had a conversation about it um, except maybe a little bit of a backlash from Johnny Ward have a look I think it's going to accelerate it, but the, definitely accelerate. I, I, I don't want Brexit. My children live live over in the UK, I, and I and I, I'm thinking of their futures as well. But would you want Brexit if it brought about a United Ireland? No, not really. Uh, well, well, my only point was is if 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 there is something good to come of it, then then of course that'd be it. Mm. Of course that, that that that's that's what that's what you know. I would have been drummed into me since I was a baby, since I was a kid. So that, that's that, of course that's what I would want. Yeah. I never thought you were the victim of propaganda since you were young, right? You are a little bit uh, hardcore. Oh, I've been, I've been, yeah. I've been brainwashed. Um, I, I think it will actually accelerate United Ireland, and I think um, something that looked almost dead in the water has now become uh, a very much reality, um, and especially with. The northern economy being pretty much an economic basket case and um, that's been propped up by the London government for years and with the ex- success of the southern economy um, it, it may be a, quite some time off but I think it's a lot more realistic. We are actually a sports show but the, we, we do know that there will be there, there will be repercussions for a lot of young well, Irish racing, players. Yeah, and for even for racing. Football, yeah, exactly, without a doubt. They didn't think of the Grand National when they voted for Brexit. Um, you know, Irish horses gone over week in, week out, uh, day in, day out. And what this could mean, we'll talk about this later on, what this could mean for Irish football is actually quite profound, yeah, even though so, we're speculating. So many different sports. We know that. We know that it, it, it's, it, there's going to be big changes ahead if, if we don't uh, see a revolt. What does the... Um what does your generation think of uh, the whole notion of United Ireland? I would say that there is a, a very pragmatic view in terms of appreciating this fact that we've come through and were born into a society that was very successful in the Republic of Ireland. Obviously, uh, the recession changed a lot of that, but there was certainly an element of things are pretty good about 10, 15 years ago, and why would you change this? Now, you kind of separate that from what you think with your heart, which I'm sure Kevin Kilban does as well, and certain parts of the country which you have this historic notion of what United Ireland is and you learn about uh, a fight for freedom and you, you pick a side and you, you nail your colours to the mast and you automatically take that historical view and place it in the present which well, you isn't exactly you, you, don't, you don't pick a side you're like you're indoctrinated from the history books isn't sorry it? Yeah. a side is picked for you yeah. a side is picked yeah. for you and um, indoctrinated absolutely uh, one eyed 100% and it then becomes a case of actually applying that historical context context into what's actually going on now and uh, is does this actually make most economical sense for us does it make economical sense for the whole island of ireland and i think there are there are legitimate question marks about that yeah and so uh, those questions are always the ones that everybody uh, like it there's two there's the uh that's not important and there's the that's the only thing that's important crowds who never meet there is also a, a bit where it's like well maybe we're more than an economy you know, maybe society is a little bit more than an economy. But Obviously, it, it economic is factors are important, but hugely important. But again, the whole law of unintended consequences, like what happens if if a United Ireland is achieved peacefully? What happens? Does the rest of the world go? Wow, you managed to end a nine hundred year conflict peacefully. Let's go and have a look at what's going on there, and we can be a lesson for the rest of the world. Well, like or. What's the dividend? Uh, also, uh, how much support are we going to get from the EU if this happens? I would suspect quite a lot as a to the British okay. government. Exactly, and that, that's a certainly benefit from that. Like when I say 
when I say that this doesn't have economic benefits for Ireland, I'm not exactly sure that that's the case because, as you say, there was such a divergent opinion on this, whether or not it matters. But like, just to go back to your point that is economics the only thing that matters when it comes to a society, I think we as an Irish people have every right to say that economics does matter when it, when it comes to day-to-day lives, the amount of lives that have been ruined in this country over the past 10 years as a result of economic factors being the very cause of that. What if, what if the cause of that was the fact that we didn't actually look after our society and actually thought that economics was all that mattered. What if that was the actual cause of our difficulties? As in the order of power in this country, allowing too many people with too much power, too much autonomy, and a, a culture in a, in a government that perhaps isn't the most idyllic that does lead to... Like, is that what you're trying to say? Yeah, yeah, we forgot to have a society, we were too busy trying to have an economy. Like, it's fair to say that people ruin this country rather than economics, rather than uh, a quirk in the system, or uh, the matrix going wrong on us, and we definitely, like, it doesn't take me to tell this, we, we, we had a compounded version of what the global recession was at the time, and, uh, like, we know that it was Irish people who screwed this country up as much as economics did. Now, the idea of whether or not... Uh, joining up with Northern Ireland being a good thing for us in the short term as, a, as an economy, I really do have my doubts about that. But the point you make there about your, the European Union smiling on us with uh, this arrangement probably does lead to some sort of long-term gain, doesn't it? Does this become almost uh, a newfound way of operating where we've got to find new ways of being a prosperous country because ultimately there's a hell of a lot more people to deal with. There's complications that arise with that as well. And like, are we forgetting about the, the strangulation of power of the DUP up north as well, that are just going to let this thing go? I'm not so sure about that. Now, the numbers do, like, if, if you believe some polls here, the numbers do suggest that if you, put, if you put a referendum to the people of Northern Ireland only now, they would vote yes to a united Ireland. I think the point about the DUP is that um, what they're doing is slowly alienating their own base. Who, well, that's the thing. And so the, the opportunity now is to convince moderate unionists that their best future lies uh, in a uh, republic as opposed to... Um, being ruled or misruled outside of the European Union. Definitely. Like, I, I do think that it all comes down to, and it's kind of a difficult thing, and I, I've tried my best to move away from this over the last couple of years, is this kind of voting with your heart sort of thing or kind of getting too invested in history. I think it's kind of important. I don't mean recent history. I'm talking about... A hundred years ago, like there was, there was. It's kind of comical going through the replies to uh, Kevin's tweet there last night, and it kind of comes back to who shot Michael Collins. Do you really know who shot him? Are you sure? Are you sure it was him? Like, don't don't be saying things you're not sure of now. And Thomas Reeve Myers, like, we all know that. Uh, well, <laughs> uh, it, like the civil war politics is obviously still a, a part of Twitter discussion. Is it a is it a part of the actual power broking of this country? And I would say many people are of the opinion that it is. Uh, do we need to park that and just look at the, the cold hard facts of what society and how it's formed in Northern Ireland is set up? But here's, here's the thing. There is a bit where it's, it's like there's never going to be a better chance. It's a little bit now or never. And uh, now is the moment for a bit of fearless political leadership on all sides to say, yeah, well, let's come up with a, 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 an alternative that's workable and that won't alienate 50% of the population in the six counties. Mm. Like, what is that vision? What does it look like? That How was the Good Friday Agreement. How does it operate in a day? It wasn't, because the Good Friday Agreement wasn't about a United Ireland. Like, it really wasn't. But in terms of not alienating 50% of the population, uh, the fluid notion of a border, the fluid notion of being a separate country or being the one country all at the same time. Now, obviously... 
that's to Republicans in the North that was never the case. But and and the DUP have just torpedoed the Good Friday Agreement anyway. Basically, like so, uh, you you definitely need to go over their heads and start talking to moderate unionists and to the most extreme unionists and go, well, what like. You know, what are your concerns here? Let's uh, let's just listen to those and go. Well, you can continue to be with those guys over there who don't give a shit about you, mm. who have just okay bribed you briefly with the long-term aim of actually not giving two shits about you or your identity. It is incredible if you rewind the clock three years at this point to think that we would be talking about this in a serious manner at the start of 2019. How this has completely accelerated and. This isn't any longer idle talk. This is a, a real-life possibility. Well, it is idle talk unless somebody comes up with... Um, like, what is, that, what is that vision? What is, the, what is a shared vision that everybody can get behind? I think, it, I think it's a bit more beyond idle talk at this point, given the crisis in the United Kingdom. I, I think three years ago, it, it would have been, well, a lot, of, a lot more people, a lot more people in Northern Ireland would have said to themselves, we're, we're doing all right, and we would have said down here, you know, good luck to them, they're happy, we're happy, yeah. let, let, let's just keep this thing for a while, whereas now, it's turmoil. Yeah, all right. The other thing that we were talking about this week um, was uh, the... Um, sorry, I'm going to do a couple of quick comments here. Um, Dermot Connolly hasn't played a high-stake game since the second half of the All-Ireland Final in 20... That one, it's 26... 17. Yeah, 17, which isn't that long ago, really. Uh, Gavin is cold, but would not go into battle without Kilkenny, Fenton or Rock. Also, McStay got the same suspension as Connolly. So you're wrong there, Gilroy, says uh, Keen Ryan. Yeah, McStay did get the same suspension, but McStay wasn't hung, drawn and quartered by everybody over a period of time, wasn't called uh, every name under the sun, didn't have every misdemeanour in his past brought out and re-examined and re-litigated. Um, like. And also, McStay had the opportunity as the manager to come out and address it in the immediate aftermath, which wasn't something that Jeremy Connolly had the opportunity to do. Uh, Paul Gillen said, that's the one, sorry, that's just one. He does have a point, plenty getting away with it. Don't know what that was in connection with. Cody didn't get a ban in the same year. That's what Jar's referring to. Maybe Connolly's lost his love for playing football, says Shane Finnegan. Didn't seem to have lost his love when he was kicking over points, left foot, right foot, for Donegal in the Boston Championship. You know, I mean, I, I realise it's... Part of the agreement. And it's, it's kind of easier over there, obviously. There's like um, less scrutiny. It doesn't feel as much like a goldfish bowl. But um, anyway, uh, Christian Sullivan says, can we get a star-studded recording up and running of Please Don't Go for the Declan, Li- Declan Rice Remain campaign? I mean, it is mad that this whole thing is happening at exactly the same time. <laughs> it's like... <laughs> it's perfect. <laughs> it's, it's so weird. Maybe that's what he's waiting for. For the Maybe he was waiting to see Theresa May get absolutely destroyed in the Commons last night before making a call. Maybe Declan Rice saw that and was like... Yeah, it's great you, England. I'm, like, I'm doubling down on the, the shitstorm that is your uh, life at the moment. Um, uh, the Rice, should he stay or should he go saga, is a bit like Brexit. Could we get somebody like Healy Ray and convince Rice to stay with Ireland? Ray talks a lot of sense. Hashtag OTBAM. <laughs> Just don't eat, a, don't eat a full meal, Declan, or you'll fall asleep on the pitch. Uh, question, would Zebo make the current Ireland starting team or squad, asks Paul Gillen. Yes. So we're, let's take the, the situation that Zebo has never left. I would say the answer is yes. He's in the, he's, look, he's in the squad for sure. I don't know. He if, was starting 15 before he left for Ireland. I don't know. I don't know if um, uh, everybody fits. Who's he getting in ahead of? Wasn't he starting ahead of Rob Carney? No one ever started ahead of Rob Carney. Rob Carney's fit. Right, okay, so he must have been injured at the time. I've clearly got this reimagined view of Simon Zebo going on this journey under Joe Schmidt where 
uh, he clear, you could use the authority phrase his face didn't fit at the start and Joe Schmidt um, perhaps wasn't a huge Simon Zebo fan but by the end of his uh, time with Ireland Joe Schmidt became a huge fan and he was starting all the games and he was in the first choice team I, I, I might be I, I thought I was thought I, I can't be remembering that incorrectly can I? Which? That Simon Zebo was a first choice he was in the starting team with everybody fit for Ireland under Joe Schmidt before the announcement came that he was going to leave for Racing and he was just getting there but I, I do think that um, there was a constant issue that Schmidt didn't see him as defensively sound or a little bit like the Connolly argument. Here's my system. Everybody does what they're supposed to do in the system. Except Simon Zebo was a little bit more creative than that and decides, well, actually, you know, I've got this, there's, an, like, there's an opportunity here for me. I might be able to offload. Mm. And... Uh, and then other wingers come in. Like, is he ahead of Stockdale at the moment? He probably isn't. Yeah, is things have changed though since he's is he left. ahead of Keith Earls. Like, th- he probably isn't. But that, that's that's revising things in the absence of Simon Zebo. Well, the question is like, okay, know. so he comes back now. Okay, fair enough. So he, he flies home now, starts playing for Munster now, and is it, suddenly eligible. He gets in the Munster team at full back. Uh, yes. Yeah, he probably starts ahead of Mike Haley. Uh, or do you play him on the wing, Conway full back? I don't know. I, I don't know, one of those combinations. He's he's definitely, I, I would say, it's him versus Larmer then for the 23 jersey, isn't it? In I, I think if he comes back now, he's not displacing Rob Carney. I think it's it's very different, though, if you kind of pretend that he's been around for the last year or so. Yeah, I think if you never go, you don't lose. You, you're in that squad last year for the Six Nations. Exactly. Larmer doesn't get in. That's true as well. That's true. Yeah. Uh, will Caelan Blade or um, John Cooney be able to put a marker down in the Six Nations given injuries at nine? Well, we'll wait and see. It's from Aina Finn. We'll find out today if um, Blade is actually definitely going to be in the squad. It looks like he is, according to the, the leaked reports in the papers. Yeah, he, his name has been mentioned quite a bit. That the, the Cooney injury, as Andy says, he's not quite sure what the prognosis is. So we need to actually see how... Back spasm was what they were saying. Spasm, but right. like, that, that's fairly vague in terms of the severity of that. Incredibly vague. Could be absolutely anything. Um, Marmine is clearly second choice in Joe's head and given his performance against England in 2017 and New Zealand in 2018, it is justified, said James McCullough. It's a fair point. Um, certainly the person in possession seems to be the person that he trusts the most and the person in possession is obviously Murray. So nobody really gets an opportunity to lay those claims which means that the information, the most recent bit of information you have from a starting nine in an Ireland jersey, you go back and Marmion is there a couple of times. Tara Toole says, uh, every one of those players, bar Murray, is injured. Currently, Quaylen Blade. Kaelin? Keelan? Kaelin? Kaelin. Kaelin Blade. Quaylen? I'm going with Quaylen Blade. Quaylen, Lahan, Lahan. Spelled the same way. Good point. Good point. But, you know... Uh, is in second position. I suppose it depends on if you're... Like the depth chart, he's probably referring to the depth chart. The depth yes, chart yeah. is generally if everybody's fit because, uh, yeah. Lorcan O'Reilly says, we beat the All Blacks without Murray, we should beat England without Sexton, still would rather both of them, but one of them on the pitch is fine. It's a good point, Lorcan. I, I just think that, like, I think that this is a very unique scenario where um, all of the previous Ireland coaches, I would argue including Schmidt before the last World Cup, had to do well in the Six Nations because that was the job. The job the RFU tell you, you do well in the Six Nations and then we worry about the World Cup. With Joe Schmidt, it's like if he loses every game in the Six Nations and wins the World Cup, everybody remembers Joe Schmidt won the World Cup and not how the Six Nations went. And then lads, if Larry stays in contention this week, he can drag some good form kicking and screaming into the season. But how do you motivate him? He's got the money, got the life and will compete at a decent level if he competes head together. No major, says Neil Keegan. That's the motivation. Yeah, I think um, I think he's a professional sports person who like has reached the top of the golf game. Like there are a million golfers all around the world trying to become a prof- professional golfer. The guy is like 
unbelievably gifted and talented and has won a world golf championship like and romped home in it yeah you know what year was that 2016 at this point was it it was even a year before that it been at Firestone like that that feels like a long time ago like his PGA Tour winner the last thing is, the, is that major uh, and like that is a big enough motivation for any professional sports person I would have thought I think you can all remember the heresy that was um, Owen talking about the Sopranos and basically writing it off and saying it was completely rubbish so we're going to get to that we will address that in a couple of minutes time first though we're going to turn our attention to football we're going to talk about uh, the Liverpool injury situation with Phil Egan in a second here's Daniel Story who's a football writer and Forest fan who joined Johnny and uh, Kev on last night's football show to talk about the appointment of Martin O'Neill and Nottingham Forest. Have a look. The suspicion is that the owners will throw money and throw um, big decisions at the problem until it eventually comes off. And actually, the championship has shown in recent years that it, it takes a bit more than that. It takes a bit more nous. It takes a bit more faith and patience and savviness. And that's not something that Forest have had over the last few years. There seems to be a suggestion that um, the board wasn't all that happy with Karanka's style of football there, which um, had to make us, certainly, a lot of us laugh over here, obviously being fresh from the calamity that was the Ireland style of football over the last few years. But um, what do you make of that? Yeah, it's certainly a concern, and, and it was. It was. It's absolutely right. It was one of the, the owner's most prevalent concerns was that was that Cranker's style of football was not what it was. He, it should be said that Aitor Cranker was very well backed in the transfer market and that he did suffer a number of pretty humbling defeats, particularly at home. And and I know the owners looked at the likes of Norwich and Leeds and, and they reckoned that Nottingham Forest had a stronger squad than both of those teams. And, and they're probably right. But yeah, Martin O'Neill is going to have to change certainly what he was doing at Ireland in the last two years in charge because... Um, if they want to see expansive football, then then that's really not his forte. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I think people are misremembering his time at Villa. A good solid defence, two wingers, good strikers, loads of goals. Phil? John Carew. I mean... Uh, Ashley yeah. Young. Yeah, yeah. Like, Ashley Young as an out-and-out winger before he becomes a, an auxiliary, an actual fullback. So he got his Man United. United, yeah. Um, that was a great Villa team. It's a good team, yeah. Solid. They, were, they needed a striker and then they wouldn't give him the money for a striker and then they fell out and they stupidly sacked him. And that was, that was the beginning of the end. Like, then they spent 20 million on Darren Bent. I'm like, oh my God, what are you doing? They, they wouldn't give him the money to buy Darren Bent, got rid of him, cost him a lot of money to get rid of him and then signed Accretion. Darren Bent anyway. You so succeeded as O'Neill? There was a load of people. David O'Leary was there as well, I remember. He was before that. He was the immediate successor to... Uh, McLeish? McLeish, I think. Rings a bell. Uh, either way, it, it didn't make a lot of sense. And things just got a lot worse. At least they were still in that bracket for a very brief amount of time after that. Obviously, they were kind of like... Oh, no. Once McLeish came in, it was, it was over. But uh, no, that I, Second. That, might, that was the end of it. They didn't go straight into relegation, Meyer, though. Oh, they were, like, they were fighting relegation. David O'Leary had... Yeah, he... Had a few issues with them. So O'Neill takes over from O'Leary and turns him into a top six team. And then, I forgot about this, Gerard Houllier. Oh, yeah. Gerard Houllier took over and was like, oh, no, I'm fine. I'm totally fine. (sighs) Not fine. I'm completely screwed. He only lasted like six months. He went from September to June. Then McLeish, then Lambert, then Sherwood, then Remy Gard, then Roberto Di Matteo, then Steve Bruce. Now Dean Smith. I've got no recollection of Roberto Di Matteo. Neither do I, and I'm a Villa fan. No, I, I was three, I was at a Villa game when Remy Gard was in charge. They played Arsenal. <sighs> I wanted to give Remy Gard a bit more time, but um, that didn't work out. No, that was the time to make your Allardyce appointment, not Remy Gard. Kind of like the Huddersfield appointment right now. Sherwood wasn't that bad. Sherwood got into like a 
an FA Cup final and the team was so what happened with Sherwood I think was that um, they signed lots of players over his head and he wouldn't pick them and they were like these players actually aren't that bad you should just pick them just because you didn't just because they weren't your players put them in the team but he wouldn't and then Remy Gard was going to play all the players that um, your man the Liverpool Camoli had bought them oh god he actually did a good job he bought some he's good players in, he's in Fenerbahce or something now he, he just gets jobs all the time He's obviously got a good scouting network. Like they, they signed Idrissa Gay, and um, the fast guy from Barcelona, Adama Traore. Traore, who didn't quite make it at Villa in the way that he's not quite making it now. Yeah, uh, Wolves. <laughs> I was watching him chase around the hopeless cause the other night. I said that's actually suits his game. Yeah, there's a player there, right? There's like something there that's worth having on your bench, and they got him for next to nothing, but. I've no idea how we ended up down the wormhole of Aston Villa. Martin O'Neill. Martin O'Neill, there you go. Um, it's your favourite wormhole? Of all uh, the it's things. Not, like, it's not, it's the most painful one. Yeah, well, that's obviously the best one. Like, what's the most painful thing about being an Aston Villa supporter? That they've been relentlessly shit as long as I've been supporting them. With the exception of the Paul McGuire era. What about the Martin O'Neill era, though? Like, that's what, what we were talking about here. They were good times. <sighs> they, were, they were grand times. <laughs> like, what would you do now for a top six Premier League team? Uh, well... Actually, what's the point of being a top six Premier League team? Premier League team? It's, it's better being a team who just about stays off relegation because there's drama. But if you're like just about to qualify or not qualifying for... What's the joy? The getting great European nights away and things like that. And, you know, that's when you go on your FA Cup run or your Carabao yeah, yeah, Cup yeah, run. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's why Arsenal fans love the Cup because like, it's a chance for them to win a trophy. And I'm not, that's not a dig, like... You took it as a dig. (laughs) (laughs) Arsenal fans are very touchy at the moment because we got our Arsenal back. It wasn't that long ago that they were singing that and it's a bit of a shambles. Well, they should start singing we've got our Arsenal back now because (laughs) this really is. actually getting worse. It's just kind of uh, a a crumbling of the the structure in the football club, a reversal of literal fortune as in, you know that thing about qualifying for the Champions League? That's actually quite important. Back-to-back seasons where you're not in the top four and not having that revenue coming in. Turns out you actually can't afford to pay Mesut Ozil a billion quid a week. Turns out you can't afford to pay Aaron Ramsey a billion quid a week to sit on the bench. Uh, and the both of those players are now going to leave. Ozil, they are talking about paying some of his wages while uh, they sell him to another club. That is how grim the situation has rapidly become. That is a, that's like the financial mismanagement on the Leeds scale of stuff. It's like, yeah, we'll pay you to play for somebody else. And then you set Johnson on all this, <laughs> and then a decent kind of nubs of recruitment over the past eight, twelve months, mainly down to Sven Mislintat. He's gone. It seems it all comes back to this bizarre thing that happened at the start of the season, where even Gazidis just left. Yeah. He went to AC Milan. This is the mo- supposed to be the most exciting part of being involved at Arsenal Football Club. The Wenger era was finally over. It was like starting the next book and. After page one, you're like, nah, I'm not having that. I'm off to read another book. And the, the end of the first book was so good. Like, what are you doing? You've left yourself on a cliffhanger, and that's it. What the hell happened that even Gazidis left Arsenal Football Club? Something was not right. And because of that, now Mislintat is gone. Is it because of Silent Stan? Is it because of uh, the real, real top rungs of the football club that actually just don't care? Well, if they cared a little bit more, they could get it back just about five or six years ago when they were being... Very, very average, 
but being very average and qualifying for the top four every single year, qualifying for the Champions League every single year, and having that steady stream of sweet, sweet Champions League cash. Instead, they're in a bigger danger of crashing out of the top six than they are becoming a solid yeah, Champions but, League team consistently again. But the problem is, in those years, like Liverpool have got their act together. So have Spurs. So that adds in two teams. Like Liverpool were hit and miss. They couldn't sustain Champions League challenges even when they finished second under Benitez or they finished second under Rodgers, then they couldn't follow it up. They're doing that under Klopp. That just puts Arsenal out a bit. And obviously Spurs are finishing in the top three consistently. And again, that just pushes Arsenal. Arsenal aren't doing that much different, but their competitors have got better. But the worry is the gap is going to get bigger. Well, that's the worry. Like, it is somewhat acceptable. It's more acceptable to stand still than to actually regress because that's what's going to happen here with these moves that, okay, it might not be ideal you may say that Mesut Ozil doesn't deserve the money he gets paid, fair enough but the one thing you cannot do as a football club is start pulling back revenue in terms of what you're investing into players because ultimately cash is king in this game and Arsenal already weren't a financial heavyweight in the the mould of Manchester City or Chelsea and now they're even lessening that position it seems Ah. I think a lot think of those, getting carried away. Yeah, I think a lot of those English teams, um, their power in world football is absolutely massive. It's about recruitment. It's about being able to buy well, and there's no strategy at the moment at Arsenal, and that's the issue. Let's move on because we got chance to talk about Liverpool and their injuries. So uh, Nathaniel Klein goes out and loan, and everybody, oh, that's good, and you get a few games, you know, maybe. Maybe Bournemouth will pay us a bit too much money the way they do for everybody else. Yeah. And it's like, 15 oh, million for Ibe, 19 million for Solanke. Great bit of business there, lads. And then all of a sudden, Trent Alexander Arnold is injured, and it's like, who's going to play right back? Yeah. Who is going to play it right back? Well, I know, I know a lot of people saying, is there a clause to get him back? Obviously, if they can't get him back, why did they let Klein go? Klein wanted to go. He said, it's frustrating, I can't get a game. Like, over two years ago, now. over two years ago, this guy was a right back for Liverpool and he was first choice for England. And now he was nowhere near the, the Liverpool team. But I think even if he was fully fit, Klopp has moved on that Klein is one of those defenders. He's 6 out of 10, 7 out of 10. Even against United, his only start for Liverpool this season in the Premier League, he was solid. But when he goes forward, he doesn't really create. I was just looking even at his stats there. 103 appearances for Liverpool, and he has um, just two goals, five assists. Trent Alexander-Arnold, seven assists from 67 games, four goals just gives you more going forward and that's what Klopp needs. Is that on to set pieces though? That the fact that Alexander-Arnold steps over a lot of free decline. Okay, that maybe for goals but for assists even the other day watching the Brighton game. Does a step over of a direct free kick that somebody else bangs in does that count as an assist? Oh, I, sorry, I meant stand over a free kick oh, yeah, rather okay, than step okay. over. He's, he has scored a couple of free kicks but even the other day watching them against Brighton and apparently Alexander-Arnold is playing that game with the knee problem that he suffered in the warm-up Yeah, and he puts in a cross that Shakiri, the smallest player in the pitch, up against Duffy and Dunk, managed to get a bit of space. Alexander-Arnold, on his left foot, is still able to pick him out. Whereas I find watching Klein then the years, when he gets into the final third, he either checks and p- plays it back or his final ball isn't good enough. Let's say we all agree with that, right? Let's say your assessment is bang on and it's exactly what Jurgen Klopp thinks as well. But uh, injuries happen, you're in the Champions League and you're in a title race. What the hell are you doing leaving yourself with no cover at right back? Well, see, he looks at it. He has cover. He's got Fabinho, who's played as a right back for Brazil. Uh, he played centre back against Brighton, had a decent enough game. James Milner, you could play him anywhere. Honestly, I'm starting to think if they played him in goal 
against Real Madrid. He'd be better than he Samuel. He would have done a better job than Carrius. Carrius. <laughs> yeah. So Milner is going to probably play right back on Saturday, which isn't actually the easiest game to play when you've got Wilfred Zaha going to Anfield. That's, yeah, come that's on. a tester for you. Yeah. I mean, he, Who would you rather have, though? Milner or Klein? Yeah. Up against Zaha. What if, what if Milner gets absolutely roasted? Then you go back the next week and go, we now have a problem right back. I wouldn't be surprised if Milner absolutely cleans Zaha out of it early on just to basically put his stamp on the Fixes game. Fixes yellow card. Just to say that, that gets to Zaha as well in particular, doesn't it? it he'll just, yeah, but Zaha is always getting kicked up and down the pitch. But I, no, I agree. If you could, for one game, if you could say, right, who do you want to mark Zaha? Do you want Klein or Milner? But then like, we haven't seen enough of Klein. Like he played well against United, but that imagine the Oligonner or Solskjaer United going to Anfield now. Yeah. Then it would have been a different test for Klein. This was like one of the worst performances you're ever going to see from a United team at Anfield. So maybe it wasn't the greatest performance that day. So you're not worried about No, because Gomez will be back soon. Um obviously Fabinho can play there. Like I thought uh, Rafa Camacho did okay against Wolves. He was a little He's the kid. Yeah, he wasn't the kid that came on. He was the, the like Hoover. He wasn't Hoover. No, he came on actually. And by the way, talk about coming back crashing down to earth. He got sent off in an under twenty three game Jeez. against uh, under nineteen game. Sorry, against Brighton there uh, for a foul and Aaron Connolly. But um, he is probably just a little bit behind Camacho and the pe- like. Camacho played preseason for Liverpool. Okay, this is a guy that by trade as a central midfielder, so he's a good ball player. And Klopp has decided, yeah, and we can use him as a right back because they used him in, in there for preseason, and he was very good. He's got pace. Alexander Arnold essentially could end up being a midfielder for Liverpool in the long term. That's where a lot of people would see him going because, but the difference with Klein and Alexander Arnold, I can see why Klopp has decided, right, you know, if you want to go, we're not going to stop you. How long is he out for? They're saying four weeks. Okay like worst case scenario the thing is about these medical reports like Harry Kane I've saw somebody say he's going to miss 11 games yeah I guarantee he'll probably miss about 6 games Harry Kane always comes back all these players get back a lot sooner than thought a list of games Fulham, Chelsea, Palace Watford, Newcastle Leicester, Dortmund home Champions League first leg uh, last 16 that's in February Burnley Carabao Cup final Chelsea away Arsenal home Borussia Dortmund away that is the full list of the games if if they make the Caribou Cup final, obviously. That would be the uh, full list of the 11 games that he's expected. For Harry Kane. Mm. The yeah. thing is, compare Liverpool to City, because you have to compare Liverpool to City at all times here. They've had their problems at left-back. Who's better, the backup for Manchester City left-back for Benjamin Mendy or Liverpool's backup options at right-back? Is there that much of a difference between Delph and Milner, both of them playing out of position at full-back? Yeah, but I think Milner, actually, because he had that season at left-back, you know, he has, uh, defensively, uh, he's a lot stronger than Delph. I think of uh, so they're in a better position than Manchester City. Yeah, well, think for the last say for a goal that comes springs to mind, Delph, the goal that Leicester scored, the equaliser. Vardy puts a cross in, and you can see Delph looking at Mark Albrighton. He looks, he's like he's there, and then he looks again, he's gone. Like Mark Albrighton did him and just like tricked him and got a, a few yards of space, and the ball's in the back of the net. So Milner has a bit more capability defensively, I think, than. Uh, Fabian Delph um, the, obviously uh, right back City of problems as well because Kyle Walker I don't know what's going on with him but he hasn't been great Danilo isn't great so, like Liverpool I, I could see why 
Liverpool fans are thinking it seems a bit daft, but Nathaniel Klein has not played much football for Liverpool in the last couple of seasons, and nobody's missed him. All right. Um, with Spurs and the Harry Kane injury, um, do they give Troy Parrott a chance, or do they buy somebody? I mean, Son's going, right? He's going to be gone, away from yeah. 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 So all of a sudden, it's Fernando Llorente, or a false nine, or the kid. Well, Vincent Janssen's still there. Pochettino said that he doesn't want him anymore, yeah. basically. Well, because uh, Parrot played a reserve game a few weeks ago against Liverpool, and he came on for the last few minutes, and Janssen started that game. Right. So you're kind of wondering, what is Pochettino thinking? With All Parrot's goals this season have all come at underage level. He scored three in the UEFA Youth League. He scored against PSV, against Inter and Barca. Every time, and those games are on TV... And they tend to be on early in the afternoon. And, you know, when we're working hard in the office, we're like, oh, let's put on a bit of UEFA Youth League. And there's Troy Parrott banging in goals. Is he a nine? He plays as a nine, yeah. Um, like, he's not, he's not even 17 yet. No. It's very ridiculous, really. There's no chance of them but giving him significant game time in the absence of Harry he, Kane, is there? He's going to be sitting on the bench. There's some of those fixtures there, surely, like, that you could get... The problem is... the Palace in the Cup... Yeah, see, if it wasn't Palace, if it was Tranmere like it was in the third round, they wouldn't have to take Kane off the bench. The the icon that night that uh, Pochettino said the Tranmere fans were lucky to see. I thought he was right. I mean, come on. He's, at least Pochettino's like throwing the FA Cup a bone there. It could have been Harry Kane saying, put me on. There's loads of yeah, goals in this. Because that's what managers need to do when they're a manager of a football team, is look after competitions, not their team. Ah, he, his standing in the game is important to him because he wants to be the manager of Manchester United. He wants to be a leader. Oh, he, might be thinking, he might be thinking now, like given the last few days what's happened, yeah. maybe <laughs> the United job isn't such a bad idea. But I just think with Pochettino, he's not under that much pressure at Spurs. If he was given money at Spurs, like he said in an interview, you know, if you want to talk about us challenging for league titles, give me three hundred million, then the pressure will go up on him. But if he goes to United, it's different pressure. I yeah. don't know if he's ready for that. I'd say he probably is at this point. Well, so. he, you've got to you've got to find out, right? Like, yeah, it's I, a, a bit like United Ireland is now or never. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I think that um, if you're Spurs, you're trying to get a loan deal. You're trying to like hijack the Higuain transfer loan you're, you're desperately trying to get some bodies in who aren't Fernando Llorente and Higuain's going to Chelsea that seems to be something that's going to be completed it's hard to it's hard to do a, what Chelsea did to Spurs at Willian it's hard to do a reverse of that for for uh, Spurs considering the Sarri and Higuain link so I'd be very surprised if uh, somebody like that though do you take Alvaro Morata and turn him into a striker who can actually score goals so let's tell him to your rivals is obviously not going to happen. It just kind of strikes me there that you say that uh, Pochettino should be playing or should be picking up the FA Cup as if he's like some sort of politician. Like what he did with Harry Kane against Tranmere is like what would what Gianni Infantino would do if he was a football manager. As in like keep everybody happy, put a smile on the face of everybody. He's not here to make friends. He's here to win football matches and football tournaments. Playing Harry Kane against Tranmere later on was stupid. But anyway, that's just kind of that's just kind of like a little point that was kind of annoying me there. <laughs> I don't know what the Tranmere fans thought, actually, when they saw Harry Kane. five minutes on. ago. Uh, okay, on. well done. I didn't want to interject. It's called L'Esprit d'Escalier. Yeah, exactly. Uh, whatever you said. <laughs> so basically, what's, uh, what's the, the kind of final verdict here? That Liverpool are not I going to come back to the point you made at like uh, 25 past 8 this morning. Now, and I thought that was, you know. I think Liverpool will be fine without Trent Alexander-Arnold for a few games. Milner will go in there. If Matip even comes back, they have... 
the option of Fabinho in midfield or sorry at right back and then you know they can reshuffle midfield where it's about time actually Naby Keita started Step showing up. what yeah. he's made of because and now there's going to be room for that because some of the midfielders going yeah. to play right back like even he came on against Brighton the other day and he gave a ball away that led to a chance the Pascal Gross chance that Fabinho actually blocked but he away to Burnley a few weeks ago it's probably the best game I've seen him play for Liverpool and that, like, there hasn't been many because he's been moved about he's played on the left sometimes he's played in a 4-3-3 he's played in a 4-2-3-1 so I just thought I, he's been a bit of a disappointment but if he could finish the season strongly and get into the, the starting eleven, I don't think Liverpool fans would be too worried about what's happened before that yeah alright um, thanks very much for that Phil that's pretty much all we've got time for on OTBAM this morning I want to watch episode one of the uh, Sopranos last night we're going to talk about that on tomorrow's show you can keep an eye out on our brand new offthewall.com across the day for all your latest sports news Joe Schmidt will name his Six Nations squad later on today and certainly around the fringes there's going to be plenty of interest to see who makes the cut because if you don't make the cut now it's going to be very hard to play your way into the World Cup squad if you missed anything this morning you can watch it all back over on our YouTube channel it's youtube.com forward slash off the ball we'll, pod- we'll um, post the podcast now as well and we're back on the radio tonight from 7 o'clock with uh, Wednesday Night Rugby and the football show we'll see you tomorrow at 7.45 good luck so, if you like this, you'll probably also like OTB AM, Ireland's only sports breakfast show. Subscribe to the OTB AM podcast stream or catch the show live on YouTube, Twitter, Facebook or offtheball.com every morning from 7.45am. 